we accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. You're gonna go on without me. It's just go. A good soldier never leaves a man behind. Because I wouldn't give you two cents for all your fancy rules if behind them they didn't have a little bit of plain, ordinary, everyday kindness. Life, uh, finds a way. Welcome to Silver Screen Biases, where we dig into a critically acclaimed movie and evaluate the truth claims within it. I'm Nelson. This is Jeff. And this week we have with us... (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. Already killed it. (laughs) Introduce yourself. And I am Zach. Hello. (laughs) Already interrupting people. It's a pleasure to have you here. This is a good start. (laughs) We have Zach coming in here remotely, but uh, we've known Zach for a very long time. Yes. Uh, He lived in in my parents' house uh, with their permission for for way too long. How many years without permission? Uh, It's unknown. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's fair. I mean, yeah, that's fair to say. (laughs) (laughs) He overstayed his welcome and we wouldn't have it any other way. The, the deck was quite nice. <laughs> yeah. A lovely porch. All right. So what movie are we talking about this week, Jeff? Citizen Kane, 1941, directed by Orson Welles. Is this your first time watching it, Jeff? Yes, sure is. First and maybe only. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. Whoa. Zach, this is not your first time watching it, correct? It is not. I've seen this uh, film quite quite a lot. Uh, it's, it's I Yeah, big, big, big fan of it. Big fan of it. And th- this movie actually was on uh, was requested by Zach when when we asked him to be Correct. on the show. Uh, this is the movie he chose to cover of the top two fifty. Uh, so this is of significance to Zach. I've got thoughts on it, and uh, I'm excited to get into those. Mm-hmm. But before we do, uh, after we, we always like to derail the early conversation with a quick moment to address uh, our appreciation for our sponsors, the Tuttle Twins. The Tuttle Twins is a book series targeted at children. Well, they're, I mean, they're all ages. It's, yeah. They got well, stuff for all ages. Wasn't it in the oh. last, uh, one of the last podcasts you guys said 19 and up, no more. No That's more. right. No, I, any, anybody over 19, you have to read actual, uh, That's ad, true. adult we did, books. We did not, not adult that. books, yeah. but, you know, books right. intended for adults. Yeah. Uh, all, all <laughs> the Tuttle Twins books are, um, are rewritings and, and kind of, uh, abridged versions of other great works of literature. Uh, so if you are over the age of 19, you really ought to be reading the originals, um, like Frederick Bastiat's The Law, or The Road to Serfdom, or The Creature of Jekyll Island. Terrific books. And The Tuttle Twins also is a video series. You can find that on Angel Video or on YouTube. Uh, it's terrific stuff. Link in the comments when you click through there. Any purchases that you make, uh, we get a thank you from Tuttle Twins for sending you. Is there any book or series or YouTube episode that would go along with what we're talking about today, Nels? I think uh, I think pretty much everything in the Tuttle Twins will touch on this movie because this movie is is very Forrest Gumpian. Uh, it just kind of yeah. touches on so many things. Uh, it's going to be a good episode. Cool. Yep. Absolutely. Zach, are you familiar with Tuttle Twins? You know, apart from uh, hearing us talk about it. Apart from hearing you guys talk about it, uh, I haven't. Um, you know, I you mean my uh, sales pitch hasn't been enough for you to go and check it out. Well, I just I don't have any. I thought kids we were friends in my life exactly. yet. You know, um, that's true. <laughs> uh, 
I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, you know, I just just got engaged, so we're congratulations on the on the way. Um, Hopefully, she sticks around. That'd be great. Yeah, she's telling me. <laughs> telling me, man. She, um, she, if you've got yourself a coffee barista, they're good for life. So. Oh yeah, she's yeah. she's fantastic. She loves movies too. We we uh, awesome. we both have the AMC uh, Stubbs membership, so we go see nice. movies constantly. Well, okay, so before we get into that then, um, we have questions that we always ask our guests. That's right. Um, and so, Zach, if I can quiz you a little bit before Ooh. we get into the movie, I've got three questions for you. And the first one is, do you have any political biases? Where would you, how would you describe yourself politically? Uh, you know, I, I, uh, this is hard. I mean, I'm not as staunch as Nelson, uh, but I think I'm a little bit more engaged uh, than you, Jeff. I would, so agree I would with say that, yep. I'm a I'm a pro life small L libertarian uh, that unfortunately in a lot of local and regional elections I have to vote conservatively, but with larger elections I typically go more third party. Hmm. Yeah. No, I feel that. Yeah, because okay. for the most capitalist reason, I think that if the third party could get more attention, we'd have more. Uh, competition within the political realm and more competition in the political realm means better results. Nelson, you like it? I feel like you kind of shoehorned in the word capitalism there. (laughs) I was curious where you're going with that. Today's uh, word of the day is capitalism, capitalism, an economic system that means no government. So let's talk about the most capitalist government. Uh, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Um, right. no, now, Zach, just because we have a history with you and stuff and we know kind of your geographical background, has your political views changed from moving from the East Coast to the West Coast? Have you seen... Not East Coast. The well, Heartland. Uh, you're, I mean, you're... you're Okay. The Northeastern United States. We are the Eastern, are the eastern border of the Midwest. Okay. Not the Eastern. I did and, and, once... and you're now in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> so. Yes. I'm so, Pacific Northwest, Spokane, Washington. Uh, yes. I would say um, I've gotten laxer. I think there's more permission to not be conservative is the best okay. way to put it. But I don't think that has necessarily changed my values. It's mm-hmm. just allowed me to make sure that I'm actually focused on them. I think in Ohio, there's a lot of pressure to be a certain way and to, yeah. to, to believe a certain way. Uh, and I love Ohio. And actually, Ohio as a swing state was quite um flexible uh with belief and i think there was a lot of really good critical thought um kind yeah. of taught but uh i think in, in a rural town you, you know it's, everybody kind of leans in one direction um but my dad is a pretty hard liberal um and i have a difficult relationship with him so he's but he's like he's the kind of liberal that like you look on his facebook and in the past three days he's posted or reposted 50 political cartoons and they're just like nasty mean just dumb cartoons that actually don't prove anything but then he's like you need to believe truth and then he just posts all these like fake cartoons that yeah and conservatives never do that (laughs) but it's it's funny it's like it's on it's on both ends and so it's like you know i have family that are highly conservative uh that do that um but actually it's it's like my dad who's a significant uh liberal um really 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 pushes it's just kind of, it's just mean about it. You know, can we just yeah. be nice to each That's my political affiliation. The nice political party. Let's just yeah. all be nice to each other. I'll vote for you. All right. Second question. 
What's your religious bias? Uh, I am a Jesus loving Christian. Uh, I actually work at a church out here in uh, Spokane Valley. And uh, I'm a, I'm a hospitality director, actually. Um, my, my, what is that? I know. Uh, he my, works with my, the hospitals. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I oversee like a lot of our hospitality teams at my church. It's a big church. You know, it's a very big church job. So How does over- your church define hospitality? Because when I hear that, I think like hotels. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I work with volunteer teams to create a welcoming and loving environment so that guests and um, newcomers would feel really welcome um, and there would be no obstacles for them to experience the gospel. Uh, so you're the director of seeker sensitivity. Uh, essentially, yeah. There's, there's, I would like to think there's a little bit more to it, but yeah. You know. And the cool thing with your position is, is you're plugged in with like every aspect of your church then because you've got to be able to take a newcomer and go, you know, is there a place where you'd like to be a part of? And you had, like you plug them in there. like So you're kind of like, you've got the pulse on all the different areas of ministry. Would you say, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, my at my core, I am a, a connector of people. I love getting people connected yep. to other people, and and maybe even myself, and maybe serving on one of my ministry teams. But um, it's just incredible to see people come alive and find their passion, especially within the church. Um, I think that is when we are at our best. Is when people can find not just places to be and exist because they're checking off a box, but somewhere where they really want to be. Um, and right. some of their excited and passionate to be about. Awesome. Uh, any other um, comments about your religious perspective or? I have, I have one more question about your position. Okay. Within, Ooh, within your do. church. How often do you have issues where um, people are approached as newcomers, and but because of the size of your church, they're actually somebody that's been a congregant for a while and just wasn't recognized? <laughs> Well, we, we, I train against that, you know, okay. so we're constantly telling volunteers, like, never ask anybody if they're new here. You okay. never ask that oh, question. Smart. You always ask them, how long have you been coming? Um, and that gives you an idea because because if they're new to you, you, that's a fair question to ask. You know, if, yeah. if you talk to somebody, hey, how long you been coming? Oh, I've been coming for four years. Wonderful. What's your favorite part of the church? Or are you plugged in yet? Are you in a small group? Like, what's going on? Um, are you just sitting in the back row and being a lazy piece of crap? You know, like let, which, where are you at? Um, but, uh, if they're a new person, they're like, actually this, like, this is like our first time. Uh, and it actually creates a little bit more of an invitation. It makes them belong more than just asking, are you, are you new here? Cause that, that feels like a mean girl's quote. Are you new? <laughs> it can be alienating if you're new. Mean girls. I don't mean think girls, so. I, I do not believe it's the top I don't think there's any Lindsay Lohan movie in the top mm. 250. A tragedy related. related. (laughs) (laughs) The underdog story. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Last question for you, Zach. What is, if you can narrow it down to one, that would be preferable. But if you could give it, if not, what are your top movies? But what's your favorite movie of all time? If not, if you can't answer that, give us kind of a range or a ranking of some of your tops. Mm. I know it's a hard question. Yeah. So to give this context, um, Man, I see a lot of movies because me and my girlfriend, we have the AMC stubs. So we get three movies a week for 20 bucks a month, essentially. Um, and so we're at the theater all the time. And then before that, when I was in college, I actually had a movie pass when it came out. If you guys know what that is. Yes. Um, I remember that. Yeah, 10 bucks, And I could go see a movie a day. And me and my college housemates, man, we literally were there almost every day. 
Um, was, that year, that movie pass was going. I tried to see a hundred movies in that year, and I think I was I just about like to ask, 74. Okay, because I remember seeing your Instagram. Like every time you'd watch a movie, you'd you'd upload the pick the, the ticket. You didn't make it to your goal. I I never did because okay, movie pass okay. freaking shut down. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I was on track. I was on. Tra- I was going to okay. pass it. I was on track to do like 160 out of 100. That's fantastic. Did you did you ever go watch a movie that you had no desire to watch, but to watch something new, you had to watch a movie that was unattractive to you? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Be, and I think that actually, I really enjoyed that though because that's when I found some Pleasant of the surprises. greatest surprises. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jojo Rabbit. Oh, I Taika love Waikiki. Yeah. So good. One, one of, of the, the best, best movies. movies. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Taika Waititi is one of my favorite directors. Except for Thor Love and Thunder. Which I have not seen because it looked so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So back to the question. uh, Best movie. This is hard because I see it. I I thought about this question. I was like, maybe I'll just answer with like a really uh, philosophical one where it's like, my favorite movie is the next movie I see. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but maybe it's actually true. I, I'm really excited yeah. always about kind of the next movie that's on the horizon. Um, I like and that. I really enjoy what we're doing right now in cinema. I think there's some that is just crap, but there's some stuff that is really, 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 um, really beautiful. If you can yeah. find it. Sorry, Vin Diesel. Um, is there, okay. Is there a movie that you would say if you can't pick a specific movie as your top right now, what about like is, a comfort food movie? Well, okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. no, go ahead, Jeff. Um, your question. Comfort food, or is there a movie that defines the season you're in right now? Like, what's a movie that kind of like this? Four is... weddings and a funeral. <laughs> That's fair. Oh, um, <laughs> man, uh, comfort food movie would probably be Treasure Planet. Actually, I if watched that recently. Back, I love that movie. Treasure Planet is amazing. I think I have a really difficult relationship with my parents and my dad, uh, and that movie you and like that. the the themes of fatherhood that come out of that. And also like treasure Island, like it's a beautiful, beautiful original story, which is there a total twins treasure Island adaptation? Not yet. Not yet. I hope they get one soon. I would Uh, mostly they go after um, works of philosophy and literature, like Liberty minded stuff rather than great works of literature stories. Fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, treasure planet is always like a really big comfort to me, but man, I, I'm a big Nolan guy, big Damien yeah. Chazelle guy. Wait, who, um, okay, I don't recognize that name. Give me an example. Uh, La La Land, Whiplash. Okay. He just did uh, Babylon, um, which Babylon itself. Those. Have you guys? Did you guys see Babylon? I, I haven't. I, so I've I've heard great things about Whiplash and La La Land. Haven't seen either of those. Whiplash is on the top two hundred and fifty. Yeah, it's incredible. I think La La it's Land incredible. is too. Is it okay? They they both should be. They're they're masterpieces, honestly. Okay. Um, but Babylon was weird. It was kind of like a uh, the, the film industry talking about itself and giving itself praise. Okay. It, it was it was kind of weird. It was it was long. There's that's Oscar uh, bait right it was, there. It was, yeah, it was Oscar bait. But yeah. it was it was beautiful. Like oh my gosh, the the way that the story was told, the pacing, the bam, you know, bam, bam, bam. Like it felt so good. And I honestly don't even doubt some of its accuracy in regards yeah. to portraying like Hollywood culture. But nevertheless, it was like it was just artful debauchery is the okay. best way to put it. I'll check it out. Uh, what's don't the last movie? With, don't watch it with family. Don't watch it with okay. family. <laughs> what's the last movie you've seen? Uh, ooh, I just uh, just saw Ant Man. I mean, 
the last okay. one I saw was what'd you think? Quantum Mania. What'd you think? No spoilers. It's fun. Spoil it. It's fun. Spoil the heck out I really La La Land love... is not in the top two fifty. But go oh, on. Bummer. Um I really love uh Kang and uh yeah. um, Jonathan Majors was incredible. Oh my gosh. I'm excited yeah. for Creed as well. But um yeah. he his character, I think he's gonna bring a <clears throat> you know, um Jeff uh Jeff Bridges did just such a great job with Thanos. Uh, no, Jeff, Jeff Bridges, Bridges was not Thanos. No, not Jeff Bridges, but uh um uh what's his name? Jeff um Jeff uh, Jeff Bridges was the villain Obadiah in the first Stane. Iron Man. Yeah. No, um, oh, um Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin. Yeah. Josh Brolin. yeah. So uh, right off the top of the drum. Uh Josh Brolin did such a good job with portraying some of the humanity of, of Thanos, and I think uh Jonathan Majors is gonna do the exact same thing with Kang specifically. And so yeah. I just love that character. I haven't seen it yet. I loved the character in Loki. It's the yeah. same character, but I loved the mm-hmm. portrayal of the character in Loki. Uh, uh, well, big, technically not the same character. The the it's a variant. Like and he, yeah, and sure. he but but like the cool thing about Jonathan Majors is like he portrays the person differently. So like it is different acting. It is a different. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So like it's not so it's not the same manner. The way it was portrayed in Loki was a big departure from the comics. I'm a I'm a big comic book fan, and I've gotten some fatigue from the MCU. Um, so I haven't yeah. rushed out to see Ant-Man. Um, it's early, way better than the critics reviews, are telling it. Early reviews are pretty bad, and reviews from friends who have seen it mostly yeah. have been, it's very average. It's, I, but I Ant-Man, think it's a lot of people have that feeling about the first Ant-Man, and Ant-Man is one of my favorite movies. It's but it's probably just because I'm a big Paul Rudd fan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's always funny. It's like, at the end of the movie, the ants save the day. Surprise, surprise. You know what I mean? <gasps> so. Yeah. There are ants in the movie. Much, the much like the Flash had to figure out a way to run faster to defeat the enemy, Ant Man <laughs> had to find a way to be ants. smaller and control ants more yeah. to Who defeat the enemy. Yeah, no, I, I think the critics are being pretty dumb with that movie. I think it is better than what they're saying. But um, is that critic score or audience critics? Scores? Critics are critics. smashing critics are it. Well, now I'm but, it but up. the audience score is like in the high eighties. So We're yeah, look my wife and I saw it yesterday. So it was we we really enjoyed it. Looking this up in real time. Um, but okay, so as he's looking that up, um, we um, I'll give you some of the facts about the movie here that we're going to be talking about today. Forty-seven percent tomato meter from critics, eighty-four from audience. Yeah, that makes it a good movie in my opinion. Yeah, no, he, I would, critics, I, critics I, are terrible I, at judging movies. Enjoyed it very much. Okay, all right, Citizen Kane. The reason we're all here. Oh, is it? I think so. What did I watch? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, nineteen forty-one. This movie was released. Uh, it's an hour and fifteen min- fifth, an hour and fifty-nine minutes long. Mm-hmm. Uh, directed by Orson Welles. Which, when I first started watching the movie, I got Orson Welles and George Orwell mixed of up. Of course. And I was like, "Oh, this is the same guy that did 1984. I immediately corrected myself, but. Um, but I, he was like 25 when he did this. Like, like it's like I recognize the name, but I couldn't remember where. And then so now I just he's specifically director and actor. Um, this movie is rated PG. Um, the notable cast is Orson Welles. He's the only person in the movie that I a name that I recognized or that I saw was in any prolific movies. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Who was he in the movie? He played Kane. Oh, did he? Yeah. See, I'm not great with like silver screen. Oh, not silver Kane. screen, silver yeah. age Hollywood, um, and so I didn't I didn't recognize anybody in this movie. Yeah. Um, I, he did a terrific job. Yeah, no, I, and he was he a lot was of the, the supporting actors the were pretty, uh, but that that was incredible. Um, it's 
It's mm-hmm. currently, as of today, when we record, it currently stands at number 95 in the top 250. Um, and it's 8.3 out of 10 with the, with the user ratings on IMDb. And last but not least, it's 99% tomato meter. That's incredible. And 90% audience. Now, uh, Zach, I know that you're a big fan of this movie, uh, and you've been a long-time listener of the of the show. Is this the your favorite movie that we've done an episode on so far? Ooh, good question. Um, Thank you. I've been practicing. <laughs> man, the the Studio Ghibli stuff is good. I really, I mean, I think the Spirited Away one. I was like, man, I really want to watch Spirited Away again. Mm. Um, uh. I would say, yeah, actually, yeah, this is probably if once this comes out, this will be my favorite. Awesome. I did enjoy The Prestige. I, I, I will say The Prestige was an incredible movie. Um, have I'm curious. Uh, I, I might end up cutting this question out entirely. Have any of the movies that we've covered, did you watch them for the first time to watch them before the episode? Um, or had you, have you seen all of these already? So the first one, Psycho, uh, mm. that was one that eluded me. And so when you guys um, did it, I was like, you know what? I haven't. I should have seen Psycho by now. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I watched it after you had oh. did the podcast for the first time. Yeah. So did you, you know listen th- to the episode first, then watched it? Like I a did, psycho. but had you already been spoiled on the ending for that or did we spoil it for you in the, in the episode? No, abs- I mean, what is that? Like it's, it's in the an 60s, you know Yeah, but I mean? Jeff like, hadn't, Jeff didn't know the ending. No way. Oh, <laughs> wow. 19, 1960. And all I knew was the shower scene just cause it's the iconic yeah. moment with the, yeah, I had no clue how it ended or like even who the, like, yeah, I, I, I had no idea the ending of the, yeah, the deranged. Several of these movies. Man. It's the first time I've, I had ever seen them. Yeah. Um. And this one included Citizen Kane. First time I've ever seen it. It's one of those movies yeah. that, like you with Psycho, it's like I should have seen this by now, right? Why have I not seen this? Mm-hmm. Uh. Everybody tells me it's so good. I think for me there was a little bit of, how do I want to word this? Because of how many people had told me it was such a good movie, I had very high expectations going in. Mm. For me, I think it met those expectations. Because those expectations were tempered with the fact that it came out in 1941. Well, Citizen Kane. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. And, and cinema's changed a lot since 1941. So I had some tempered expectations with that. But uh, as you hinted earlier, Jeff, you weren't um, as impressed as me. I, you're right. I was not. I, I didn't hate it. But there was, from on a strictly entertainment value, mm. oh, yeah, it's dry. <laughs> like, I... I, I can't tell you like I can't tell you any specific moments that I was like oh this this part bourbon. I don't like but like it just it didn't have me gripped like I like like and this is not just a hoax like I'm not doing this on purpose but like even a movie like Clockwork Orange like I didn't like that movie but there were there were moments that kept me enticed yeah this movie I'm just like I I'm following the storyline but I'm just I'm bored I don't hate it's, it I'm just bored this is a movie that I think is better after the first watch. Okay. And I'll take because, your, I will watch it again. I'll take your word on it. Yeah. Because I mean, you sit through the first couple of minutes and it's just like, it's talking about Xanadu and all yeah. these things. And, and I'm like, I had to look that up. Hell? I had to look up what Xanadu yeah. was. It's yeah, a movie like, with what? Olivia Newton, John. That was made decades <laughs> later. No, wrong this, Xanadu. This is, this is the origin story of Xanadu. No, I, the I roller skating lady. <laughs> I looked yeah. it up. Xanadu was a, uh, uh, a, 
Xanadu is kind of like one of me- several English pronunciations for uh, a th- the seat of the M- the Mongolian Empire. Oh. Uh, uh, it's spelled differently now, but Xanadu was how they used to spell okay. it in English. It was it was established by the grandson of Genghis Khan. Well, that's probably why they they mentioned the the Kublai Khan. Um, Kumla, K- Kumla Khan, which was is his Kumla name. Khan. Kumla Khan, yeah. Um, no, I had to look that up because I was very curious. I'd never heard, like, I've heard Xanadu, but I was like, surely this is something then if they're <clears throat> referencing it. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, on, on your couple, on your next couple views of the movie, you're yeah. really going to be inspecting the character of, of, of Kane yeah. so, so intently because you start realizing, okay, here's this guy that now at the end of his life has nothing to really live for and just dies with all this treasure. But it's like, man, like you, you see the things that built him up to it, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And you start looking at every single interaction with, with every, like, and that's what I love about this movie is every single conversation that is in this movie forms Kane's character to some extent mm-hmm. and, or, or displays some aspect of his character on an, on an, on a deeper way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it, it, oh, so good. Yeah, not a lot of the conversation in this movie felt like filler, which right was it was all, all intentional. Yeah, it was. Yeah, the dialogue was very intentional, and I appreciated that. Yeah, that most of the notes that I took down were quotes mm. that were like, I I think a bit, there's some very powerful quotes in this movie that may even trump some of the dialogue we've had so far on this podcast. There's some lines yeah. that have jumped out to me. I'm just like, man, that's heavy. Um, yeah. But before we get into, I got one more question. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the budget Nelson? Yeah. What's so the budget of this the film? budget for this movie, 1941, in 1941 was $839,000. That's that's which for wow. its time was an extravagant budget for a right. movie. Um, in modern real real dollars, <laughs> uh, that's seventeen million. Which, by modern standards, is a very inexpensive movie. Yeah. It was filmed over the course of just a handful of months. Um, in nineteen forty one, I have something really interesting about when it was filmed. Okay, hmm. so in the movie, th- there's a handful of moments in the movie, especially up front, where like you see that newsreel about Kane's life that I expected we were going to revisit and they were going to pay off throughout the movie. And in my opinion, really didn't. You know, like references to him being a communist or a fascist or visiting world leaders abroad. Um, So he comes back from Europe and says, yeah, I met with world leaders in France, England, Germany, and Italy. There will not be a war. So this movie comes out in 1941. It came out in, like, September of 1941. And Pearl Harbor happened in December of 1941. Wow. Right? So, like, Oof. when they made this movie, when they were filming the movie, war was already happening in Europe. So there was already, like, already the audience is seeing this and saying, oh, Kane gets it wrong. But they had no idea how wrong Orson Welles in prepping the script got this wrong. Yeah. Well, I think that might have been, like, that might have been intentional. Because then you you kind of really do see what a load of crap Kane is peddling. Well, yeah. So so it's very emblematic of uh, yellow journalism of his day, right? Like he's kind of like an amalgamation of like um, I'm blanking on his name, but some of the prominent journalists of his day. But he's also like a Theodore Roosevelt type character. 
Um, an amalgamation of a lot of characters. His his adoptive father Thatcher is kind of a combination of like Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan and other titans of that era. Um, actually, so I recently watched. I think I've mentioned this in previous episodes. I watched the history series Men Who Built America yeah. and Titans Who Built America. And for me, watching this because this is set in their time. Yeah. Like like for me, I'm watching these moments. I'm like, oh, that's just like this guy. Oh, that's just like this guy. That's yeah. just. And for me, it was really interesting. So uh, specifically, I wrote down here. Uh, you have that moment where Thatcher is speaking before a group of other men, and he's like, "I'm going to read this letter, and I'm not taking any questions." And just the optics of that, to me, really looked like Rockefeller when he was hauled before Congress in 1907. He was like 68 at the time to condemn him for antitrust, right? And the other journalists there are saying, hey, you know, your your adoptive son is going after you for antitrust stuff. And, like, it was shot to look like it. Like, there's no way that Orson Welles didn't have that in mind because it was such a high-profile incident. It was 30 years prior, but it was a high-profile incident. So just really expertly crafted characters that really embodied... Um, these larger than life people that existed in the time. I think for me, I think a lot of this movie was kind of trying to take a critical view of these corporatist class. Yeah. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit more later, but I, I, I found it fascinating. There was definitely no point in this movie that I thought like that, that, that Kane was shown in a positive light. I like, disagree. Do you really? Okay. Yeah, like, I do disagree like, as well. No, not necessarily like a complete villain, but just you, I was under the impression almost from the very beginning, outside of him being a child and him being removed from his mom, I was under the impression that all of his post child scenes, he had hidden intentions or like, like, like you didn't fully know what his intentions were. It's like, it's like you didn't, I couldn't fully trust him ever. Like, and so with that, I guess maybe that's why I thought that there was malplay or like, look okay, maybe that's where it's coming from. Then. It's just, just cause like you never knew his angle. Or yeah. Like, sure. I mean, I th- I would say I feel like I I wish I had hope for him in the beginning when he was when he just bought the newspaper and he's like, well, it's going to take I got 60 years, you know, a million dollars a year to like run this thing. And I'm and the declarations of principles uh, in that stuff, like right in the beginning, you're like, okay, maybe this guy is going to use all this money and he's just going to buck the trend and he's just going to go in a certain direction. And there's yeah, we we can kind of get into some of the truth claims that I I feel like. Come from well, that, I just want to touch real quick. So, I because I, I I did the math on this, ran it through an inflation calculator. Uh, so at the time, and and the movie's really fuzzy on what year it is, uh, but we also don't have really good economic data before 1913. Um, so this movie, th- that that scene where he purchases the Inquirer or becomes the the CEO or president of the Inquirer, however you want to look at that, it's late 1800s, early 1900s. That's best I could figure. And uh, inflated, uh, it's basically like 10 times. So if it's costing him a million a year then, today that'd be like 10 million a year. And nice. so it's like he's got about, in modern money, about half a billion dollars to his name. Right? Six, $600 million before he runs out of money trying to float the Inquirer. So he's, he's, a, he's got half a billion dollars that he can play with. So Well, in the movie they said he was the sixth richest man in the world right yeah yeah something like that yeah i, th- I believe it was exactly the sixth which just uh, i intended to look up who was the sixth richest at the time but i forgot to i know richest at the time was a, a constant competition between carnegie 
uh, Rockefeller, Ford, and Morgan. So interesting. Yeah. What a fountain of 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 knowledge and history you are, Nelson. Thank you for that. Yeah, and some of that might be marketable someday. Yeah. Someday. <laughs> someday. You should you should put that on a podcast somewhere. That's a good idea. Facts with Nelson. <laughs> yeah. They're not fun, but they're facts. <laughs> yeah, we, we also so there's not much by way of money talked about in the movie, but uh, surprisingly, the only other time we give like get like a dollar sign on something is the opera house that he built for his second wife was three million dollars, which is you know thirty million dollars today. So, which that would afford you one apartment in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for a, for a month. month. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was, before we get too far on, again, something early on in the movie that I was expecting to pay off later and didn't, but I wrote it down anyway. So Kane is called a fascist by one of his critics and called a communist by his father. And this would have made sense more in the day, right, right before World War II. But the similarities between these two ideologies has been pretty well obscured by time. But like, fascism was founded by Mussolini. There was other thought leaders of the day, but first implemented and practiced by Mussolini and, and very much inspired by Karl Marx. Communism also very much inspired by Marx and socialism as well. Communism uh, was this idea that you had to have it universally. It has to happen everywhere. It's going to happen everywhere simultaneously because of a, a worker revolution. Um, Mussolini and thought leaders in Germany who, who inspired Hitler, uh, they believed, hey, this isn't working. We've seen lots of evidence it's not working, so we're going to pivot. Uh, Mussolini's pivot was we're going to do it uh, just within Italy, and we're going to really emphasize the Italian brotherhood and, and focus really on the history of Italy through Rome and all those eras. Uh, that's why fascist is fascist, F-A-S-C-E-S, which literally means a bundle of sticks, and that's actually Roman iconography. It's, it symbolizes the strength of, of unity, right? Uh, Hitler also said, hey, we're going to make this local. We're going to nationalize it, national socialism. So mm -hmm. fasc uh, Mussolini turned all the industry into uh, government-appointed, whereas Hitler's plan was to make it all government-run, a, a distinction really without a difference. Uh, and the reason he invaded Poland is because we needed he needed arable land for farming to support his his people. So you know, obscured by the, by the ages and uh, academics with an agenda, we now see fascism. Hitler as a fascist when actually he was a socialist, and we see fascism as fundamentally opposed to communism when really it was more like a. It was much more like how Baptists and Methodists disagree, right? Like they, <laughs> they agree on nearly everything except for a handful of specific things. Um, and, and on those things, they'll disagree very strongly. Uh, it was really more what it was. Hail Hydra. That's, that's right. <laughs> so that's all I really have to say about the, that because the movie really moved away from it. But when it was teased up front, so I thought it was going to play more prominently. I like the way you well, described this at the beginning, like being a, a Forrest Gump movie. Like you really didn't get – the only storyline you're following is the Rosebud storyline. Yeah, it's pieces and parts. And there were many segments that they were showing, little clips of flashbacks that they were showing where I'm like, I could I could watch more of that, please. Like, sure. So like so yeah, I I not necessarily not necessarily those that jumped out to me, but there were other moments where I'm like, Well, wait, keep going. Uh, nah, yeah, it's come like, back. It's like, it's like if a detective were investigating Forrest Gump. Yeah. That's what the movie yeah. feels like. I'd watch that movie. <laughs> for war crimes <laughs> <laughs> you know well even in today's culture like you know people throw around these political 
titles such as fascist or communist or socialist. And all often misusing them. Often misusing them. But even you see that in this movie in 1941 where, uh, you know, uh, Kane looks at um, Leland, you know, they're disagreeing about something. And when uh, I think Kane buys the, the Chronicle guys uh, and from there, you know, Leland's like, oh, but are they like, what are they actually, you know? Right. And uh, they're just having a playful discussion. And I think Kane was like, you fascist, you know? And it's, so it's like, no, he called him an anarchist. Anarchist, anarchist. Mm-hmm. And just that idea of, and it was even used like maybe a uh, half an hour before that moment when he was talking about somebody else. It's like, yeah. well, we'll just call him an anarchist. You it know? was. So and, the first time they used the term anarchist, as an anarchist, it piqued my interest. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time they used the word anarchist was investigating the disappear. The, the, they had just bought the newspaper. He wants him to investigate the woman that's disappeared, who we're going to presume has been murdered because he's writing sensational headlines to drive viewership. Right. Uh, this is something we see in news throughout history. It was not unique to this era, uh, but in this era, they called it yellow journalism. And he tells the journal, he tells the the manager, send a journalist, tell the journalist to say that he's a detective. If the guy asks for a badge, loudly call, uh, accuse him of being an anarchist. Mm. Right. At that time, being an anarchist mm. in New York was illegal. Right there was a I, there was a guy and I cannot remember the exact details of it. He was either jailed for a prolonged period of time or actually put to death for it. I can't remember which, but he he jaywalked, was arrested for jaywalking. When asked why he jaywalked, he's like, "I don't I don't uh, acknowledge your authority." And they're like, "Oh, you're an anarchist, great." And they oh they, they put him in jail for years or put him to death. I can't remember which. <laughs> At the time, also anarchist was pretty much synonymous with communist. Most of the anarchists in that era were communists, but not necessarily. Emma Goldman being the most prominent one, who, when she saw communism actually executed in Russia, said, nope, done with that. And she was no longer a communist, but still very much an anarchist. So, And then the second time anarchist shows up, it's to mock Leland, because Leland questioned... uh, It was, are we at war with Cuba? I say we're at war with Cuba now. And Leland's like, but are we? And that's when he accused him jokingly of being a communist, of being an anarchist, trying to undermine the U.S. government, who was now very much at war with Cuba. Uh, and and that actually plays pretty close to what actually happened with history with the Spanish-American War. Like, the, the journalists lied us into war. And, uh, of course, never happened again. The, the media has never lied us into a war yeah. since then. Never. <laughs> I have a few thoughts about the media. <laughs> mm-hmm. Listeners at home, look up Operation Mockingbird. Oh. Ooh, interesting. Wow. Uh, fun fact about media. Um, I don't know if I need to build any more credentials. One of the reasons that this movie also means a lot to me, um, I watched this when I first took over. Um, I um, I was the editor-in-chief for my college newspaper. So I ran my college newspaper. And about that time was when I actually came upon this movie because somebody was like, you should run your newspaper like Kane ran his and <laughs> no. you know and then I took I took all I took all the notes and I said you man still this friends is with the that kind guy? of newspaper I want to <laughs> <laughs> tell me is that, is that school still running okay that's a little that, too close to I, that, was a joke. that was a joke because I, I know I know that obviously unconnected that was uh, I, it well, is not <laughs> it, it is it is so right. I guess for I don't know if this is even going to be included that was for context I, I can cut anything that you don't want in Okay. And, I, and I didn't Which mean is, that disrespectfully. I just knew that you had to. <laughs> shift 
and nothing no, it's to fine. Do I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's fine. I don't have my diploma hanging right behind me. Um, <laughs> um, no, uh, which, oh, man, that was, that's just so funny. Cause I even wrote an article. So I was the editor in chief, right? When the, the school was being shut down and the, do you want to say what article- school? Oh, oh yeah. So I was at Moody Bible mm-hmm. Institute, sure. uh, Moody Bible Institute had a branch campus in Spokane, Washington, when they're mainly based out of Chicago. That's where the big Chicago stuff was. Well, it turns out that Chicago was hurting, so they, you know, kind of tightened up their butthole and they cut off everything. I believe uh, you meant to say of budget, Chicago. not butthole. <laughs> they tightened yeah, their yeah, budget. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> they clenched. Uh, so, they clenched their they clenched. budget. <laughs> yeah. They they cut off all of the artillery campuses and et cetera. Um, and so... Auxiliary uh, campuses. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so Spokane. I was. I came to you know Moody Bible Institute, Spokane. But what was what's kind of funny about this conversation is I wrote as the editor in chief of the newspaper uh, the front page uh, article of our first of the the year that the school was shut down. So the first newspaper of the year. I wrote an article and it said something. It was the the title was like "Is Moody Spokane drowning or failing or something like that." And the first line was, no, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> and then three months, uh, maybe two months later in November, we all get an email. Hey, your school is going to get shut down in six months. It was mm. such a poor decision. A but I don't know if that has anything to yeah. do with anything, but uh, totally I ran the paper. Unrelated. Yeah. There, yeah I, there's one of the quotes that jumped out to me in this movie while we're on this topic, because it, it, it definitely yeah. is, is if the headline is big enough, it makes the news big enough. That's right. And like that, yeah. I, I literally paused the movie and I was like, that, like that's, I imagine that's still in the minds of everyone that's in the big journal. Like, like, like whether or not there's truth to it or whether there's all truth or minimal truth, like yeah. that, that's their motivation of like, I don't we'll think, make it big. Like, I don't think you even need to. Uh, narrowly define it with oh, corporate media, man. right? Like you go, yeah. you look at you look at independent media on YouTube, like Tim Pool, The Quartering, any of them. All of them use very sensational headlines, what we now call clickbait, yeah. right? And they're they're creating news <laughs> by Ooh, making yeah. the headline big enough, right? Yeah. And uh, and and of course, Orson Welles is saying this very literally because they were talking about the literal font size of the headline, right? But it's sensationalism. Uh, Zach, did you study journalism in school or just run the paper? Uh, I did study a little bit of journalism, um, but it was mostly kind of running on the fly and kind of learning things. You know, I even, I even had like a vision for uh, the newspaper that was like change because it had some sort of vague tagline and I, and I transitioned that tagline to something like creating and engaging in meaningful conversations. And so we were um, really trying to, yes, create conversations. So we actually did write some really provocative material. You know, we wrote about uh, like, should you have guns in church? You know, should churches have security teams? Yes. What does what does feminism look like? (laughs) (laughs) What is what does feminism look like in the church? We did like a pro and a con. We did two separate articles that ran in two separate papers. Um, We uh, wrote about the uh, exploitation of women selling their eggs yeah. um, and especially for college students looking for money. And that was like a really popular trend among college aged women. Um, that article would hit differently now with the price of eggs right now. <laughs> oh, gosh. What kind of eggs were they selling? 
God. <laughs> Jeff, you can't say that. I, can't, I did. I just did. Canon did. I did. <laughs> free radio. Um, free. <laughs> I put radio on the internet. Yeah, we're we're airing yeah. this from a boat right now. Is yeah. this on, is this on, <laughs> off the coast on, of the Isle of Man. Yes. <laughs> It's on AM radio. Yeah, exactly. And a very small audience. <laughs> Arg, mateys. Um, but so we we did write. Um, I wouldn't say cessationalist uh, in that regard, but yeah, uh, we we definitely wrote stuff to like, hey, I want to I want to create a conversation. So we're gonna we're gonna state a lot of facts. And we're going to talk about what's happening in the dialogue that's happening in culture. And yeah. then we're going to put it in your hands to go talk to your friend, you know, in your, in your theology class. It was a Bible school. So it's like, Hey, what can we, what can we do? What conversations can we help start amongst these college aid students to get them thinking critically about these topics within their class, as opposed to just being, you know, I think you go to Bible school and it's just, here's what you believe as opposed to developing and critically thinking about what's happening in culture and all these other, you know, all these other things. So, um, the, that quote, if the headline is big enough, it makes the news big enough. Mm Um, it's so true though. And it's, it's true because we make it true. You know, we all want that big headline. If you see a big headline, you read it period. You can't avoid it. I agree with that. So, it, I, that's a true statement. I don't know if it's that we want it as much as we can't help ourselves. Yes. Um, the reason uh, largely I asked, and I'm, I'm glad you went into your own experience because I hadn't even considered that. And I obviously should have like your own experiences uh, verging on yellow journalism was, are you familiar with the term and, and what does it mean to you? Um, I, you know, I learned about it when I studied journalism in high school a little bit. Uh, and in history books as well. And basically, it, it, it's just what we would call today the sensationalism, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Light on facts, heavy on opinion, uh, and yep. and oftentimes downright false information uh, or misinformation, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Interestingly, uh, today, earlier today, I watched uh, James O'Keefe's um, uh, farewell address to his staff whether you want to say he fired or resigned from project veritas it's splitting hairs um but he there's like a 45 minute video of him giving a farewell address to his staff and one of the things he said several times is we do not i can't remember the exact word for it but we we do not make any estimates and i've let journalists go by trying to assume or uh, give opinions on why something happened we don't talk about why unless we have fact right uh, and yellow journalism is very much the opposite. Uh, we we have a handful of facts, and then we make educated guesses at best of what's going on. And, and we see that a lot today. You know, uh, r- right now we're in the middle of. Uh, actually, let me back up a little bit. Yesterday, there was a massive anti-war rally in Washington D.C. put on by the People's Party, which is uh, very much a communist party, as well as the Libertarian Party. They have a whole lot to disagree on, but they both agree on we shouldn't be in wars. And they were going, they had this big anti-war rally over uh, U.S. involvement in Ukraine. Uh, And if you look at, you know, the headlines from a year ago on Ukraine, a lot of those were very quickly proven to be downright false. But the media was happy to run with them because it made for good news, you know? Yeah, you know, I think it's kind of scary 
Um, I think news people have to be aware of this power um, because I think there's incredible power. Um, and I think as we, you know, Jeff, you, you ran into that quote, but man, I feel like I got 10 quotes before that quote even happened in the film. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just this idea of uh, Thatcher was criticizing Kane and saying, you've never invested into anything. You just, and he was like, yeah, you're correct. I just buy things. Yeah. And at this point he had bought the newspaper. And this idea of investment that Thatcher had, that like investing needed to just be for financial gain. And Cain was investing into influence gain and to, he was, he was investing, but not into the resources that Thatcher thought he should invest into. He was investing into the resource of public attention and influence. And the idea that by controlling the media and his, and this image, uh, he could really control culture to some extent. You know, with with Xanadu and getting all these statues and and everything that the media did and all these headlines and the power that he had and the songs that were written about him and the people that loved him and the opera house and all these things that he built, um, he built out of his influence that came from specifically the newspaper. And so this idea of, you know, Thatcher criticized Kane about like, hey, you're like you're not even investing into anything that is important. You could argue that. Cain did invest into something that was important. He didn't. He invested into influence. Now, how did he use that influence? I, I think we see degrade over the course of the movie and over the course of his life. But it there there was man. I just had so much hope right at the beginning that he really could be a guy who could buck the circumstances of or, or buck the stereotypes of this trend of just being a wealthy guy that just is looking for power. But unfortunately, that's kind of how it turns out. So I, I would disagree slightly because um, okay. Thatcher is very much modeled after J.P. Morgan. Now, I don't think Orson Welles ever confirmed that, but it's it, like if you're familiar with J.P. Morgan and the House of Morgan, it, it, you can't avoid it. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, there's the I can't remember what movie this is from, but somebody said money is power. And somebody else says, no, power is power. <laughs> Money can buy power. Um, Morgan, uh, J.P. Morgan, on more than one occasion, bankrolled politicians and, and like, like through just, his, just buying influence, was able to put people into positions of power that, that uh, personally benefited him, in other ways benefited the country, and he believed he was doing the right thing, helping the whole country, but very much exerting his own influence. Um Whereas, uh, I think Kane was trying to go more a traditional influence power dynamic. Now, obviously, he had the money to help him there, right? But he, he, he tried to go. He tried to become a governor, and with the event, with the goal of eventually becoming president, <clears throat> and um, and in that way, he was going after more traditional avenues of power. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the movie kind of paints, um. Well, uh, actually, no, because some people say it outright. Kane very much is a fool. He, he's yeah. he's not a clever man. He's incredibly charismatic, and through <clears throat> through circumstance is incredibly wealthy. But he is a fool. He doesn't invest, mm. which which is what uh, his his adoptive father is saying. Because when you invest, you're purchasing something as a wise purchase that will eventually bring stability, influence, money, power, whatever you want to call it. Whereas Kane is buying things, right? Not investments. Yeah. I'm, it's a purchase. 
right? Like yeah. like the way somebody doesn't invest in a dinner, they buy dinner, right? Um, and for him, it's all frivolous. Um, and except for the newspaper, everything uh, except for the newspaper. I, I think the newspaper was well, even he said, you know, I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. It was just frivolity, yeah. you know. I think, but how much of that? How much of that is also just Kane being facetious? Because I think there is a part of I just think, to, like, just to knew, piss off his dad. He knew he knew how to write. Yes, exactly. Just to piss off his dad. Just to have power over Thatcher. Everything yeah. everything you see is him exerting his power. So what did you know? Even Thatcher asked. I, him, I would say influence, what would you like not power, but I mean I'm splitting. Yeah. But uh, Thatcher asked him, "What would you like to be?" And Kane responds, "Everything you hate." Sure. You know, and so he's going to do everything he can to usurp Thatcher's power over himself because, and and that's kind of why he went away. That's why he went back. And so I would say, I don't want to say necessarily that he's a fool because man, he knew how to write a headline. He knew how to spin a story. He knew how to abuse the the influence of the media that he controlled. Um, But I don't think think, that that makes him a wise person. Yeah, but I don't think that necessarily makes him a fool uh, on the other end. I think, I think he... It's kind of like a street smarts versus book smarts kind of a thing, you know. I think he knew people charismatic for sure. Oh yeah, but there's something yeah. about wildly his, charismatic for sure. Yeah, just highly, just highly manipulative. You know, um, you, this is just a truly narcissistic, manipulative personality that was built over just decades and decades of continued, uh, quote unquote, success. Um, and I think at the end, I have a, uh, I don't want to get to it quite yet. But I would love to even ask you guys these questions of like, what what do you guys think actually corrupted Kane, and was it his fault? But that does lead me to a question that, if I may, I, um, I know you guys are the the leaders of this podcast no, here, but I do no, have no. one specific question that I would love to ask from the very, 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 very beginning of the Lay movie. It on us. Was Our Kane's mother? What was Rosebud? <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Was Kane's mother's actions justified? Kane's mother gave Kane up to Thatcher because she did not want Thatcher to be under the abusive power of her husband at that time. Uh, uh, Kane's original father uh, says that he was abusive and she didn't want him to live in poverty. And they had all this money now that they came into from the sale of their the land that they had uh, had. And so they had this land, they sold it, and then Kane essentially says, I need somebody else to take this child to give him a better life so that he is not raised in poverty and he's not raised under this abuse. So the mother wants to save her son from this lifestyle, but at what cost? So were Cain's mother's actions justified by giving Cain up to Thatcher? I, I may be misremembering, but I believe it also involved resolving some debts. Partially. Um, um now, I, I, they came into a ton of money, so they came into all of this money, and they like they could have easily resolved the the tiny little bit of debt, without, and so maybe that was the mother misunderstanding yeah. what they had actually come into or what. Perhaps, but they left then Kane all the money, so she they they settled their debt, but then she leaves everything to Kane enough to make him the sixth richest man in the world. So this isn't unsubstantial. But he would have had that and money. She, and she chooses way. to leave it to him. 
he would have had that money either way, right? Whether he went with Thatcher or stayed in that house, right? I, I unless their remember. parents. My understanding unless was their parents that would have used it. All of his wealth came from being adopted by Thatcher, but I may have misunderstood. Okay. Yes, his wealth didn't come from. Um, if you look it up, because I did, that was something that was very confusing to me as well when I first watched it. Um, you do have to look it up, and it's. I believe it's something like there was like an oil reserve or an oil rig please correct me if i'm wrong i know i'm wrong but just because of the language of the 1940s i, I think we kind of just missed it very quickly as they mentioned it and it's something that i think in 1940 would have been very on the minds of how they came into this money mm-hmm. but it was this i believe it was the sale of some other land that contained access to oil or something like that so uh i i asked chad gpt uh which is a a pretty <laughs> Just a phenomenal research tool. I, I can't recommend He's it enough. third co-host. Yeah. <clears throat> I asked, where did Kane get his money in Citizen Kane? In the movie Citizen Kane, Charles Foster Kane inherited a large fortune from his family who made their wealth in the gold mining industry in Colorado. As a young man, Kane was left a sizable trust fund by his parents when they died in a car accident. This inheritance provided him with financial means to become a powerful media magnet and pursue his various business and personal interests. So, yeah, you're right. It had nothing to do with Thatcher. I think the goal was to that would, Thatcher would take him under his wing and teach him how to manage his resources well. Um, and, so it was uh, his resources either way. Yeah. It was just setting him up for what they thought at the time was a successful opportunity. Yeah. And he even said himself, I always gagged on that silver spoon. If I hadn't been really rich, I would have been a really great man. So to what answer your line, I, 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 a line I disagree with, because again, I think, second I think he's a fool. Time. I think he yes. way overestimates his own ability. But to answer your question, um, let's presume as I like to, when I, when I, when I look at a moral question, that's not, necessarily a, a, a religious question i try to say let's presume a world where there is no legal structure right what would happen in a free market we'd still see adoption we'd still see people selling themselves <clears throat> excuse me to resolve debts like tr- like not chattel slavery but traditional forms of slavery where they have a contract to resolve a debt and they work for free effectively um, we'd still see that uh, adoption would happen where people would like abortion would actually be reduced because people could sell their children um, and and rather than abort the child because you're poor, you have the child and sell it to somebody who's wealthy. So I I don't think the question of is it right or wrong is really correct. I think the correct question is, was it wise for her to do this? I think given their circumstances, given the relationship that he had with his father, given the stoicism of the mother, she doesn't seem uh, to have much of a maternal instinct, given that she knew, I think, based on what we just learned, I think she expected that he'd have quite an inheritance, and Thatcher already has money and knows how to manage money. I think what she did was very wise, and I think she did the, the best thing by her son that she could. Um, would I do that with any of my kids? I don't think so. But that doesn't mean that what she did was necessarily wrong. I think it was a, a, a very shrewd, a calculated decision that showed, and actually for that time too, not terribly uncommon 
It, but it was, it, there was no point in her decision, though. Again, whether she was right or wrong, like, she had nothing to gain either way. Like, 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 she didn't make that decision for her benefit. Like, like, you didn't, it's like, there was a very genuine and authentic care about what she was trying to do, whether it was the right decision mm-hmm. or not. Her, her intentions were pure. Like, like, yeah. you know, like, cause she didn't, she didn't become the sixth richest person in the world. You know, like, like she, yeah. her, her, she was strictly thinking of Cain first and foremost, whether she was right or wrong. Yeah. Her intentions were pure. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if, if I have any biases, you know, um, it's, it's this idea. I mean, this family is, is very valuable to me because I grew up without it, which is why Nelson, your parents took me in is because I was scruffy looking 17, 17, 18. Uh, and I, I didn't have anywhere to live. Um, and I, and I didn't feel like my, my, and my family, uh, kind of just didn't want me. Um, or it wasn't wise for me to stay with my family. So that's why Nelson's family actually ended up taking me in. And so when I think about this idea of a mother giving up her son, I look at the life of Cain and I look at how, of who he became. And I just wonder with, with his most treasured thought, or at least the thought at the very end of his life being Rosebud, which is it okay if we spoil it? Do we, should we spoil it? Should we not no, spoil it? Is, we spoil movies. Spoil yeah. it. So Rosebud is the name of the toboggan or the sled that he had when he was a kid. Are you serious? I didn't watch the last <laughs> 10 seconds of the movie. Wait, <laughs> and so I from the memory time. that he, so theoretically the memory that he's cherishing the most at the very end of his life is the, is the, the life that he had before he was given away by his mother. And you just wonder would he have had like what difference of a life he would have had if his mother decided to keep him versus give him away. Now, this being said, Jeff, uh, I I know you and and your wife are on a beautiful adoption story, uh, and and have just I I hope you get to tell it one day because it really is so beautiful. Um, and I love I love adoption. I see myself adopting. I feel like I was adopted myself. So at some point, I like yes, adoption belongs. There are parents that should not be parents. But And there are wise decisions that parents can even make that can be very um, difficult to make, like this mother giving up her son to Cain. Mm. But then you also just wonder, at what cost? Um, and it's and it's a hard, it's a really hard question to ask. Because you look at this movie in particular and you say, man, what a different life Cain would have had, do you think, if he would have grown up with his family right. versus with Thatcher, who, to our knowledge, had no other kids but only had his love for money. Yeah. I uh, So a line early on in the movie about Thatcher is there's no trick to make a lot of money if all you want to do is make a lot of money, uh-huh. which not entirely true, but you know, there's some truth there. Um, I, I think that Thatcher sincerely did do his best, but you had a kid that... Um, I mean, his very first interaction with Thatcher was was punching him in the in the stomach or hitting him with a sled or something like that. This is a kid that's that's very strong willed and rebellious. Yeah. Uh, in his own experience, forced to leave his family. Not entirely accurate, but he didn't have a choice in the matter. Um, and raised by a man who may not have had the paternal instinct that we all hope our our earthly fathers would have, uh, though very few earthly fathers have. What I saw in Cain was resentment, rebellion, 
Um, and uh, something that we see a lot, unfortunately, with adopted kids, uh, which is this resentment towards your adopted parent for not being your yeah. actual parent. Yeah. Uh, something yeah. that that every adopt, not every, most adopted children go through, it's and and it's a it's just such a heartbreaking and difficult thing to process because you know they don't they didn't choose the circumstance. Yeah. But I, I yeah. from what I saw, I think Thatcher did do his best. The, the amount of frustration that that like that you see Thatcher having, uh, twenty five years later uh, after the adoption, when he's trying to to coach his his son through his finances and says, you know, oh you you should sell this business that's losing you money. It's a bad investment, and his son's like, mm, it'd be fun to run a, a newspaper, and then just that frustration. Mm-hmm. Like I I think Thatcher really did want what was best for his son, and then. Mm-hmm. His son immediately buys the like immediately on buying the newspaper. Immediately spends all of his time targeting his father for antitrust. Yeah, targeting Thatcher. Right. So when Thatcher calls him a communist, like not entirely dis- inaccurate from from most of the antitrust movement. And uh, I don't know, I, like I thought Thatcher was a a bit of a tragic character in the story. And and I want to clarify, like he's modeled after J.P. Morgan, who I despise. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think you see the story of what Kane was. He looks, he looked to be ten, yeah, maybe eleven yeah. to twelve age, and then you see his family give him up for reasons he doesn't understand. Of course, and and now you look at the story of Kane, and you just see a hurt kid. Yeah, you and just see a life. kid who wants to be loved has no idea of what love looks like because any love that was known was was thrown to the side for money for the resolution of debts from his perspective at least and so he's like well and now in order to get that love that i i seek so desperately i have to i have to seek after this which which you guys ask me why does this movie mean so much to me and it's like because man this this i feel like the story almost juxtaposes my own story Mm. uh, as a just a human being coming from such a difficult family and having those deep childhood wounds yeah. that it's like, okay, well now you have these wounds. Now, what are you going to do about it? What, do, what actions are you going to take? Because at the end of the day, you can't blame your parents at the end of the day. You can't necessarily blame your circumstance. Sure. It, it all comes down to your actions, your thoughts, your movements in life, your decisions that shape who you are, which I think even at the end of this um, movie, um, Jerry Thompson, who is the the, the journalist, mm-hmm. the guy who is trying to figure out what Rosebud is, he says, I don't think any word can explain a man's life. Yeah. I love that because that hit me. Because in my life, you know, at, uh, if you look at like the 10 statistics for at-risk youth, like how do you define an at-risk person? Well, if they meet these... 10, if they make six out of these 10 things, they are at risk. Right. If you look at that list, I, I like my family, I have 10 out of 10 yeah. for, for at risk reasons. So, score. you know, yeah. And so <laughs> you look at my family <laughs> and you look at my life and it should be, I should just resemble whatever my family was. I should be a drunk. I should be in jail. I should be all of these different things. Yeah. Um, yet it was the idea that like that was the word that was described over my life but yet not one word like i'm i'm sorry i'm preaching a bit but like <laughs> there's not there's not one word that can define me and in the same way unfortunately kane didn't get that 
and he allowed this word and this this idea of money and the love of money define him or at least didn't he wasn't aware enough that it eventually defined him until it was way too late i think also he fell victim to something that we all struggle with which is he was deeply unhappy and wanted it to be somebody else's fault right if i hadn't been really rich i would have been a really great man meaning Mm -hmm. i'm not a really great man now and it's money's fault it's not my fault right it's everybody else's fault um and repeatedly throughout it's the that movie, victim mentality it is it is yeah. um and it's not something that's unique to the era either that's something that's that that transcends time yeah and you saw that with the way he treated his wives too like yeah there there wasn't at least depicted on screen there wasn't moments of like genuine intimacy or genuine affection mm-hmm. it was all just you're here for a purpose not necessarily for a sexual or Especially with his second wife. Right, right. But it's just like, I need to fulfill something through you. Yeah. I, you're a tool. Like, the first wife was, was uh, access to political power. Right. And the second wife... President's niece, right? The first one was like the president's, president's niece. niece. Yeah. And the second wife, like, the like we get the impression that the purpose of that marriage was to provide some kind of closure from how the first marriage ended by making her a famous opera singer, which she never was going to be. Well, and when he got with Susan, his second wife, their first interaction was her showing him care and love. Hey, you just got hit by a puddle of mud. I have some hot water. I can clean you up. And um, she had a toothache. That's why why he walked into her apartment. Yeah. You know, it wasn't until she's like, I, I can help clean you up. Yeah. And he's like, and then they discover in that apartment, it's like, she has no clue who this guy is. Yeah. And he was infatuated with that because that's the love that he was looking for. That here's a person that's just going to care for me, not because mm-hmm. of all this stuff that I have, right. but just because they're a good, loving and caring person. And then at the end of the story, what you see is you see Susan beat to a pulp uh, emotionally mm-hmm. uh, because she used to be a caring person and is now just was turned into this thing by Cain, this, this image that she never wanted to be. Yeah. yeah. It was always his idea that she would be the opera singer. She never wanted to be the opera singer from her words, at least. Yeah. Changing gears pretty strong here for a second. Um, so, the, so the reason that he gets involved with the first wife, right. Is to get access to political power and then try to get political power himself by running for governor with the goal of eventually being yeah, president. He, he had his eyes on the White House. Yeah. What people often criticize us as capitalism in America is not capitalism, right? Because capitalism is an is is in free trade between two or more persons uh, without involvement of the third party. And government is that third party. What we call capitalism in America is often more accurately described as cronyism. I strongly recommend Patrick Newman's book, Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America. Um, this this movie takes place in the progressive era, which Murth, Murray Rothbard wrote extensively about in his book, The Progressive Era. Uh, and, and basically, when you've got these like people that run corporations and people in government making deals together to get these like revolving doors of business and government, that's cronyism. It's not capitalism. It's not it's not quite socialism. It's probably more close to fascism. Um, but that's something that we see in this movie a, a lot of right is this um this leveraging political and corporate will to to 
try and dominate and influence and control. There's a really great extensive uh, conversation between Leland and Kane. And Leland's very drunk at the time. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. But the I, I wrote down everything he says in a somewhat abridged version. You talk about the people as though you own them, as though they belong to you. Goodness, as long as I can remember, you've talked about giving the people their rights, as if you could make them a present of liberty, as a reward for services rendered. You remember the working man? You used to write an awful lot about the working man. He's turning into something called organized labor. You're not going to like that one little bit when you find out it means your working man expects something as his right and not your gift. When your precious underprivileged really get together, oh boy, that'll add up to something bigger than your privilege. Then I don't know what you'll do. Sail away to a desert island, probably, and lord it over the monkeys. You don't care about anything except you. You just persuade people that you love them so much that they ought to love you back. Only you want to love on your own terms. And just to wrap up real quick, this is something that is still very much present in, in American politics today. I already touched on it previously, but to circle back on it, uh, U.S. involvement in the war between Russia and Ukraine right now. Uh, recently, uh, Mitch McConnell was asked about it. You know, the that the public sentiment uh, and and support of Ukraine has really started to dwindle over the last several months. And what do you have to say about that, Mitch McConnell? And he's like, well, I'm here today to tell the American people why they need to support Ukraine, that we're going to continue. Right, well, this guy is supposed to represent, you know, it's a government of the people, by the people, for the people. He's supposed to represent the people, not tell the people what they're supposed to think, right? And that's something that they accuse Kane of throughout this, of the movie is, oh, you're telling people what to think rather than actually trying to understand the people. You don't love the people. You want them to love you. And so you're, you are manipulating them into that affection. Um, successfully. Successfully. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Well, and then he even, responds later in that scene and it says uh he says a toast jedediah mm. to love on my terms yes the terms anyone this is a, here's a truth claim he's trying to make yeah. the terms that anyone ever knows his own that's right do you guys think that we only really know love on our own terms like what what expectations do we have of others is there where do we get grace mercy and generosity like From is love really only on our own terms I'm gonna, I, I've been doing a lot of talking, so Jeff, I'm going to let you take this one first. Um, I think every individual has their own formulation of what love is. Obviously, like I, all the three of us are Jesus believing Christians and stuff. So, like for us, love is a person that you know came down and you know the story of salvation and stuff. But like, but like for me, like if, if I narrow it into more like my own humanity, like I know love because of my parents like i mean like like for me specifically like my idea of what how i should treat my wife how i should treat my daughter how i should treat the people around me i learned from how people treated me and how people loved me and how people use that word to me so like i have formulated my own idea of what love is because of what's been done to me so i i so i get so my answer to your question Zach, like i guess it'd be yes like I think every single individual would define love differently, but I think there's a lot of common ground for people who have had good experiences with love. Then there's a lot of common ground with people who have had bad experiences with love. So I, I don't, I don't know if it's on my terms, but my idea comes from my experiences, maybe not my terms, but the experiences that have been done to me, if that makes sense. 
I don't think that's the exact same, but like, I do feel like there is a personal aspect to everything that we have a, an opinion about. And, and Jeff, do you think, so would you say you've, you've mostly had a positive experience then with your, with your family and with your, with the, the, the models of love that you've had in your life? Yeah. I, I will say like, I, I've had a, I had a pretty blessed childhood. Um, pretty, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I, obviously I don't want to brag. Obviously we, we've, we've talked about some other situations and stuff like, like, but yeah, like I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones. Like my parents are married, are still married today. Like I, but I, I did grow up seeing divorce. My dad had a previous um, marriage and stuff. So like, I still saw aspects of divorce and I saw what it did to my older sisters, but like I myself was the outcome of a nuclear marriage and, and two genuine loving parents that loved me and the rest of my siblings and stuff. Like I do feel lucky and blessed to be able to say that. Like, I know that's, that's probably not the majority of my people that I interact with on a daily basis. Like I, my wife's a school teacher and I don't think she has a single kid that comes with them from a nuclear family. Like, so like, I know that's not the norm today, which is heart disheartening. I also think though, that there's a, a certain degree of that, which is, um, emotional maturity. Like Zach, even though you've said several times already that, that you have complicated relationships with your parents, yep. you know that in their own way, they tried. And and you appreciate that they tried. Were they good at it? No. Is any parent good at it 100% of the time? No. no. Are some parents better at it more than others? Absolutely. Yeah. You know? I was very lucky to have parents that were good at it most of the time, right? Uh the times that they remember being bad at it, I don't, right? The times that I remember them being bad at it, they also do. But the majority of the times that they think that they were bad at being parents wow. are, are parts that I don't remember, right? Uh, and there's a blessing that that God gives us in that, that the majority of the time that we, that we really mess up as parents, for the most part, unless we're consistently bad at it, our kids, our, our kids don't remember that. And, and there's a blessing in that. I think there's a level of emotional maturity where you can look at your parents and say they tried, you know, and they, they yep. and, and I think that Kane is a really good example of not having that emotional maturity. Yes. Um, to yes. answer your question about is love only on our own? Do we experience love only on our own terms? I think that we have to contextualize this in the fact that Kane is not a Christian. And so he doesn't have the same understanding of what love is that we do. Um, and so from a purely secular worldview, I would say that that's an accurate statement. Yeah. I mean, I would say I would, I would agree as well um, in, a, in a secular worldview. Um, you know, I think about, I, I was trying to, to think about like this idea of, you know, Jeff, you come from uh, more and more a nuclear family, uh, the, the loving, the loving family. Um, Nelson, you as well, me, not as much, but how do we now sit in this circle and be aligned on a lot of things, mm. right? We're very aligned. And so it, for me, it, it wasn't necessarily our, 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 our growing up or our childhood that is, that has aligned us with all of these values. It's been our, our, our relationship with Christ right. that is, that has shaped us and transformed us and, and scripture, right. That is, that has brought us all together. Yeah, Calvinist is a very so concise you, answer for that question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you just, you think about what is it that truly, truly shapes a person? What is it that gets a person to emotional maturity? Mm -hmm. Because I look at Cain 
And my heart just breaks yeah. again, just going back to this idea, like, man, he's just a scared kid looking for love. And he's just kind of having a tantrum his entire life. But at what point do you start becoming self-aware and understanding that like, oh no, like I've got to go, like there's, I'm, there's more to this than just blaming other people. There's more to this than just being the victim. Like I have a part to own in this and I'm what I like, I'm just, it's curious to me where that comes in. And like, I, I honestly like where that comes in for whether that be the secular thought, uh, you know, I, I know as Christians, you know, we're, we're, we're taught to kind of evaluate these things and, and to ask the Lord to search our hearts. And I'm just like, man, I couldn't do it without Jesus. And so I have no clue how anybody else does. So one of the questions you asked within that uh, rambling and coherent nonsense was, uh, <laughs> was yeah, where does wrong. the emotional maturity wrong. come from? Uh, and to answer that question, uh, I think it's best to turn to James, uh, the book of James, chapter one, uh, to joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance when it finishes its work makes you mature and complete, not lacking anything. I think, and I know I already kind of crapped on Cain for saying that uh, it was because he was wealthy that he's not a good man. There is something to be said that um, adversity breeds maturity and being born with a silver spoon in your mouth, the level of adversity you face will be different. Now it's still up to you as an individual to, to choose maturity, to choose to, to respond because he still faced adversity. It was just different adversity than you or I experienced, you know? Um, you don't spend a million dollars a year. Not regularly. <laughs> That's no, That's um, sorry, 10, 10, 10 million, million. 10 million. 10 million yeah. yeah, I mean, I'd have to check my records. I don't think I have. <laughs> <The> checkbook. Uh, <laughs> I'll consult with my wife on that. I don't think I've spent 10 million a year. Um, but so, yeah, he faced different adversity, but he still faced adversity and he chose not to face it. He chose to run from it, mm. he chose to rebel against it, he chose to to use it as an excuse to indulge in 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 vice, right? Which we saw. Hmm. And, and so I, I think that that's the answer to your question of where does an emotional maturity come from? It's from choosing to face adversity. Uh, Cause we all, hmm. we all have adversity, but do we run from it or do we face it? Um, go ahead. That's a curious point because in my mind, I think he faces adversity once in this movie. And that is when, uh, uh, is it gets, gets he? Um, uh, I have uh, what's the, the other here. politician's name. Gettys. Gettys. Yeah. Boss. Gettys. Boss Jim W. Gettys. Uh, and he's kind yeah. of an amalgamation of, in that era, anybody with the with the title boss was somebody who ran a political machine. In that era, all the political machines were run by Democrats in major cities. Uh, so that's kind of a reference to Tammany Hall. That positions Kane as kind of a Roosevelt or Grover Cleveland type character fighting against these, because both of those were governors of New York at some point. You can tell by the mustache. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you're, you're not wrong, actually. <laughs> it's a great um, mustache. So yeah, so it was Gettys who, who was, uh, and these political machines of the era were were corrupt. I mean, they're still corrupt, but like very, yeah, yeah, very yeah. corrupt uh, and if if you want more information on that, look up Tammany Hall. So we see Cain presenting himself as this virtuous person, very narcissistic. And so we, we see him, you know, he controls this media. He's saying just horrible, 
um, he's skewing the media in whichever way he desires it to be skewed. Um, and even what's funny is after the election, he the if you saw the two titles of the headlines yeah. that were going to be printed, it was either win or fraud at the polls. Yeah, I have a thought on that. That, that it, sounds very familiar. Okay. Let's. I'll, I'll get it's back to that. I want to get back. We'll get back to that. <laughs> okay. And we'll any, back to that. any illusion the, that it is 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 politically motivated or at least nearsighted. <laughs> yes. So um, we'll get back to that in one second. But this idea of the adversity he faces is Gettys says, I have this information yeah. against you and I won't use it. You just have to leave the competition. Yeah, step down. You have to leave the running. You have to step down. And he refuses yeah. because he is continuing this trend of there's so many, there's a couple, like he doesn't want Thatcher to have power over him. He doesn't want Gettys to have power over him. Yeah. He doesn't want any of his wives to have power over him. He doesn't want the Chronicle to have power over him. And at the very end, he doesn't even want Leland, his very best friend, to have power over yep. him. So you you see him exercising these decisions to essentially protect himself, but more so to exert his power over all of these other individuals. And so the only time he's really stepped into adversity was against Gettys, What's interesting about that is then you could arguably say he makes his most virtuous decision by then marrying Susan. So, I don't know, I, I found that whole interaction very odd because mm -hmm. Gettys even says in that whole in exchange, we have no proof that, of any impropriety, right? Those weren't his exact words, but like, we just have things that look bad, you know? <laughs> and we have no evidence from the movie itself that any infidelity actually happened. Uh, boarding houses for women in those days, like you couldn't, like she, there was that incident where he closed the door and she says, nope, can't, can't close the door. And that was actually a few different reasons. One was because it was to protect the reputation of the women, but also it was to prevent the boarding houses from becoming brothels. Um, so anytime that they're interacting, it's in the parlor of this boarding house, right? So we know from the context of the movie, nothing's happened between these two. It just looks bad. Yeah. This was actually one of the few moments in the movie where I was like, yeah, Kane did the right thing by not stepping down against this this uh, corrupt political official trying to uh, blackmail him and destroy his life. Now, I will say he's not been a good husband, not been a good father that we can tell. Right. Um, and there's a lot of other reasons not to like Kane. But I would say. In this situation, I think that was the right call, not stepping down. Was it motivated mostly by pride? Probably. But I like I don't know, I just like that was one of the few times where I was like, Yeah, that's that's the right call. Don't step down. Which I think maybe even plays into your thoughts, Nelson, about my biases. Um, oh, for sure. <laughs> uh well, not your biases, but you know, I don't want to affirm anything. Um but <laughs> Well, I mean like I, I, what I meant by uh, that is like Kane... it's because of my biases that I probably look at that and see it as a, the correct decision. Yeah. But I, I look at the idea of Cain being a fool. Mm. Cain knows the power of media and he knows the power of perspective. Sure. And so him not stepping down was so peculiar to me and was the only time in the movie that really, other than the idea of like him trying to exert his power over individuals, this is the only other time it's like you see him kind of not protecting his image. He's fighting for influence and power, but he's not 
willing to protect his image in this circumstance. And it's, and it's so, this is a very peculiar scene and very unique scene, I think, in the entire movie that we see a little bit of maybe, maybe hope, maybe uh, some goodness of not willing to step down to this, um, you know, a crooked politician. But on the other side, Kane himself was crooked and was skewed yeah. and did have a weird image of himself as well as a weird uh, image of his own influence. 100%. And so, yeah, it's just peculiar that he didn't step down and protect his image and then try and find another way, another day to become president. Absolutely. And, and you know, there is a recent political well, figure – uh, in the U.S., who, on top of having parallels of accusations of uh, impropriety at the polls, uh, also is very acutely understanding in ways that a lot of political figures aren't these days of how to manipulate media, right? Whereas Kane ran the media, um, President Trump understood how to manipulate media, how to get them talking about what he wanted them to talk about, Um and he very much kind of had an approach of all press is good press, which I disagree with. And, and you know, I could go on all day about all the issues with him, his administration. There, there is no doubt that he understood how to manipulate media and get the conversation focused where he wanted it. So um, now, because we because we commented on the uh, fraud of the polls, I do want to say this is a, an old quote. Okay often attributed to Benjamin Franklin. There's not a whole lot of evidence for that specifically, and it's been attributed to a lot of different people, but uh, democracy is two, well, two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. Liberty is a well-armed lamb contesting the vote. Mm. So there's this kind of concept, in, especially in uh, American uh, understanding of democracy, where there is almost a moral responsibility of the minority to say, hey, we're not confident in that election. And any any kind of uh, a viewpoint that it started in 2020 is, is, is wildly ignorant of history, including a history of four years prior. Every, everyone that's lost an election in the U.S. for a very long time has not graciously said, oh, I guess it wasn't me this time. No, they, they contest the vote. And, and that is the proper thing in a in an electoral process is to push back on that because there's always opportunity for fraud, you know? Um, now, of course I have my opinions on democracy in general. I don't think it's a very viable political system. Um, but I do think You've it's never really, said that before. yeah, it's never come up. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's interesting that, you know, there's this narrative in the U S over the last several years that this was some unique thing. And here we have in 1941, they put it into a movie almost like a throwaway line. So obviously this isn't new, right? And, and, and any honest person knows it's not new. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Forrest Gump. <laughs> Jeff is just coming back to Forrest yeah. Gump. <laughs> no, yeah, I got no comments on that. I, I, I don't follow com- modern politics enough. Like I know I got everything you were talking about, Nelson. And like, I, I followed along. But like I feel so out of the loop when it comes to like, modern politics just because I guess, and I guess it's relevant with the movie we're talking about today. Like, I don't know what to trust. Like, sure. Like I just, and that's probably one of the main reasons I, I choose. I'd rather be politically ignorant than read something and go, I believe this, you know, like I just, I have a hard time. Like I I don't even have a desire 
to want to believe stuff in the media. Mm. Like I don't, I don't, I don't care to, like, I don't sure. need to, I don't need to. And so like, so I so listen to what you're saying. Like it makes sense. And I agree with you. And I've, I, I, I've checked in with everything you're saying, but just like seeing this play out in our real lives has made me just want to like, to, to not be a part of it. It doesn't make me want to fight for it. It doesn't want to make me be the, um, be the well-armed lamb. Like it, I don't, I, I'd rather be just watch things play out because like, I feel like I'd, I'll never be able to fight knowing every side equally, you know? Of course. And that, and it's like, so I like that, that well, for, that's why for me politically, like I have my, I have my views and standpoints when it comes to the value of life, the value of protecting people and the value of economic and social economies and stuff. But like, but when it comes to the leadership of those decisions, I, I can't put my trust in any of those people. Because, I agree. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have, I'm, I'm much more I'm passionately you, agreeing. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, yes. But like, it's just like, I've just, I don't think there'll ever be a time where I'm going to read something in the newspaper or on a news site or like, and go, I think that's fully truthful. And that's what frustrates yeah. me is like, and, I, I, I can't, I can't get into it. I think there's a part Jeff with that of like knowing that people like Kane actually exist, you know, these, this is, I feel like this was a biography of somebody, um, you know, and just that idea that like, I think that's why a lot of people are so apolitical nowadays is because it's just yeah. so much stuff to weed through. You have no clue who to trust. It's, it's like, there's, everybody's got biases. Everybody's trying to make their own point. Every, everybody's trying to sell something. It's all down to money. And it's just this, you know, it's, it's hard. And so Jeff, to your point, you know, you look at this movie and I, I bet that only furthers it. I bet, I bet this movie has only really furthered that feeling. It does. Like, and I, and I, I love history. Like I, I don't consider myself a buff, but like, I love spending time in reading about American history. I haven't ventured too far out from American history yet, but like, I believe history started in 1776. I, that to, to my, well, <laughs> well, that's when the revolutionary started. People were born before that, but anyways. I'm so, not. <laughs> well, what's funny is, is, is Kane was in the background going, "Oh, the Union!" Yeah. <laughs> and, as a kid, yeah. and, like, and I, and that's where the movie yeah, started. And, I, and I'm pro-life in all stance of like, from I think someone says from the, the womb to the tomb, I'm pro-life. So like, and that's sure. a, it's a different conversation. But like, but like there are some moments where I'm like, I just wish these two politicians would duel it out and make it easier on us. <laughs> Cause like 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 not again not that I want anyone to be hurt but just like I so you believe that the electoral <laughs> system should be a battle royale like, of all like, candidates I, I've watched way, <laughs> I can get behind that I've watched way too much Hamilton and, and granted like I'm that turned out negative in that but just like just like how many paces should they ten, take at least paces, one like but just <laughs> there are moments where I'm just like I wish they would just implode and then what we're left with would be easier to sift through than us trying to figure out who's telling truth like. Jeff, I want to make it very clear that Please although do. I advocate for anarchy, I would never advocate for violence like no, you I, are. I think that's a dangerous precedent. And for Jeff, any I NSA I listening, I want to be Jeff. very, very clear that I for do not evolution. advocate for violence, especially against political Jeff, figures. You, you should see a counselor, yeah. Jeff. There's something wrong with you. Now, if peaceably it's the entire mandatory. union dissolved tomorrow, I'd be applauding. <laughs> I mean, in, in the words of the Bible, Jeff, geez, uh, work hard to live peaceably with all men. I don't think, I don't think the Bible said geez at all. Jeez. I don't, 
Translation and then, is and yeah. G's spoke unto the people. <laughs> uh, no, but, yeah, no, I, no, Jeff, I I agree with you. I I know I, I hear what you're saying. I I so agree like, with that. I, I came on this podcast, not, not being in the same political standpoint as Nelson, but like as him and I've had, this is now episode 15, uh, 14 for us. This is 13 for us, but 14 recorded. Correct. Like, like we've had these conversations and Nelson has again and again said things where I'm like, yeah, I, I actually don't disagree with that. But like, for me, it comes down to the humanity portion. It comes down to who's leading these, who's where, like, and I've lost all faith in the people leading that, whether it's political or the people communicating what's happening in the politics. I have no faith or trust in them. And I just, it doesn't, I, I don't feel inspired to invest in it. That, so the, well, I, I think really then the difference of opinion between you and I is not the level of confidence we have in political figures. It's our good looks. It's, it's the amount of, uh, value we find in paying attention to what they're saying because like i i personally <laughs> and jeff goes i find a great deal of value in paying attention to what these illegitimate leaders say yeah. because i want to know how it's going to impact me how it's going to impact my family what's going on right but i also know that every single word they say is either a lie or betraying their truth mm if that makes sense. Mm. You know, like when Mitch McConnell says that he's here to tell the people why they should support <laughs> the war, what he's actually saying is, I don't really care if you support the war. We're having a war. And for me, that's something that is very important to know. Mm. Do I think that it's a... You almost wish they would just say that. I Well, in, it's my opinion that they do, if you listen. But right? you gotta weed through it. But you gotta weed through it. Now, for yeah, me, I find value in that. I'm not a good I understand gardener. why a lot of people don't. Yeah. Um, I envy our friend Dave, who can is years behind on current events, and it shocks me. But I envy it. I legitimately like. I say I, I wish that I could. But the truth of the matter is, I find a great deal of value and uh, joy is not the right word. But like, I, I used to joke that chaos is caviar. The more absurd the politics get, the more I enjoy it. <laughs> right? It's juicy. Yeah. 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 Um, but but they're all illegitimate. They're they're all illegitimate political figures. When the early Christians said um, Jesus is Lord, that was fundamentally a political position that Caesar is not. The the very proclamation that Jesus is Lord is by its very nature a dissident, effectively anarchist position. Um, Brad, one of our recent guests, he was on for Spirited Away, recently said to me, and I think it's a brilliant point. Anarchism is theocracy because ultimately God is sovereign regardless of what political structure you have. And anarchism just strips away the false illegitimate structures between us and Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that to Jeff, for you, you know, just that idea of, you know, who do you trust all these things? Because there's, I feel like everybody is just lying through their Mm, teeth. mm -hmm. And in the words of, again, Jerry Thompson, Who's I that? don't think He's any word can explain a man's life. Isn't that life. the guy that you know, created and, Wendy's? I, yeah, exactly. No, uh, it's the guy in the movie. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, <I think> Dave <laughs> Thomas. And yeah, who would have thought? It's, he's in Citizen Kane. You should watch it. I've heard it's great. Um, I watched the documentary about the professional wrestler <laughs> <Yeah>. King. <laughs> yeah, it's, I read yeah. the story of Cain and Abel. Is that what we're supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's it. But um, I, it's hard because to Nelson's point. 
and I think maybe even a little bit beyond what Nelson was saying, it was just the idea of like nothing on this side of eternity is going to be, is going to be good. It's going to be perfect to its Amen. totality. Yeah. It's going to be Preach. perfect. Um, and, and, and because of sin in this world and just because of humanity, man, we are broken. Amen. And that is why I think politics is so just tiring is because it's just, we're just a bunch of broken people trying to freaking run the world, yeah. you know? And unfortunately the people that are trying to run the world are more susceptible and likely to be corrupted by the world. As Lord Acton um, said, right? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And so my thing is like, okay, but now how do I give these politicians grace to know that they're more than just the words that they're saying and that these are guys with families and the guys that I should be just like Cain, brokenhearted for, because they're missing something. And in my perspective, my perspective, that's a relationship with Jesus. But even if you were secular, that's like good, solid family values. That's balance. That's emotional maturity and and health. Like there's there's so much that just breaks my heart for our politicians and Cain specifically in this movie. That's like you just wish you could shake them. You just wish you just want to you just want to grab them and you want to shake them mm-hmm. and tell them uh, that there's more to life than what they're living for. Yeah, I, agree. I, I I do want to comment. So I, I mentioned earlier that it was the this is the progressive era, right? This movie takes place in the progressive era, which is a a, hit, a, a part of American politics that is actually extended through to today. When we talk about progressives today, it's actually the same, very much the same political movement. Teddy Roosevelt was uh, a progressive. The prohibition era of America was due to the progressive era. The progressive era was born out of uh, post-millennialists, okay? A, a, a subset of Christians who believed that the way that, that Christ's return happens is by bringing heaven to earth, and the way to get there is by exec- uh, exerting political power to mold America into what the kingdom of God should look like. That's how we got the prohibition. That's how we got a lot of progressive policies. Uh, progressive meaning like trying to make progress, right? Uh, the progressive movement in America has shifted away a lot from American, uh, from Christian values, but it's still the same concept of we're going to remold society in our image, okay? All of government is is trying to fill that position of what only God can do, which is to lead a country in righteousness, lead a nation in righteousness. Um, and, and so I, I, I sympathize with this concept of, you know, well, you know, the people are, there are bad people. And, and so we need to remedy for that. But I don't, I don't see a possible remedy for that coming from people because people are sinful. Right. Um, and even the good things I do with bad intent. Yeah. Right. Um, even Paul himself. Right. Yep. Now, I, I, and I'm also sympathetic to your point uh, that you said earlier, which is of 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 being a product of no but, uh, his oh, circumstance no, no, that, of being a that, victim. That this side of heaven, right? This side of 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 Christ's return, we're not going to see a perfect governance, perfect government. And I totally agree. It's my opinion, based on largely secular writings that I see consistent with Scripture, that an anarchist society would be the best solution, but by far a perfect solution, far from a perfect solution. So short of, short of the kingdom of, 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 of heaven on earth, 
there is no perfect solution. Yeah. I appreciate your take on that, Nelson. I appreciate you, Zach. Oh, I appreciate you, Jeff. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> and Jeff says, got uncomfortable. <laughs> Do we have more thoughts on Citizen wow. Game? I, I've got one more quote. Yeah. And I think, it, 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 for me, it brought up, it may be the heaviest line for me that that I that it jumped out to me, and 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 it made me ask the question: Okay, when did he become self-aware of? Oh, Kane's not AI. Oh, <laughs> uh, but he is a vampire. Yeah, <laughs> I saw I saw your note, yes. Nelson. Yes, yeah. I, the first ten seconds of the movie, I was like, "Is this a vampire movie? <laughs> Have I been but, um, sold on this?" <laughs> so I, I I forget who he's talking to because I was, I was typing it down, and next thing when I look back up to the screen. The scene was over, so I, so I, I, you don't, you don't know many people. I know too many people. I guess we're both pretty lonely. Ooh, when, when, who was that? Dude? Was, I don't remember it was that later in the movie. Um, it was because I wrote my quotes down chronologically, and and just at that moment, I'm like, okay, so he is self aware, yeah, that he's lonely. Like he hasn't believed the lie that he's trying to buy, or that he's trying to publish, or that he's trying to like edit, but like there is a moment in his life where he's, he realizes that there is a void and everything he's doing is to fill that void. Like, and so just, I, I don't know if you can pinpoint the moment in the movie where he becomes self-aware or maybe he always is, but that line hit me because like I, as someone, I have, I, I'm, I'm very social. I'm also married to an introvert. <laughs> so like, like I've, so I'm, I'm aware of what both sides of the, like the coin is of like being maybe not healthy or unhealthy, but like having small social relationships or large groups of social relationships. And, and that just typically because like it's that there's so much in that, in that sentence of like to, to unpack. Mm. Cause like, obviously you don't know many people. So you're lonely. That makes sense. I know too many people, so I'm also lonely. That hit me personally because I know a lot of people. Maybe not closely, but like I have a lot of people that I would consider more than acquaintances. And for me, I'm like, oh wow, like I didn't even think that's possible. So like that that line for me struck me personally because of just my social tendencies to be outgoing, to be social, to just befriend everyone and, and be buddy buddy with everyone. Like that line was that one was heavy for me. Again, I forget. I forget who he was talking to. Let me. I'll look it up here real quick. Um, well, I wonder if it comes in the conversation with Susan, because that even leads into. Um, Susan says at the end, you know. Let me back up. Kane at the very end finally looks at Susan and says, "You know what? Please stay. We'll we'll do anything you want to do. You know, like, you, I'll give you anything you want, like." it'll be your world now. Like I will forfeit my world and and you can have it. And she's like, Nope, too late. And she leaves and then he dies. And you look at this line from Susan in that argument, that final argument. And she says, you give me things. Actually, this isn't in the final argument. This is when they're mm-hmm. like, I think she's like doing a puzzle on the ground. It's either like at the Everglades or right things. before it. You give me things, but that doesn't mean anything to you. You've never given me anything that belongs to you or that you care about. And you've never given me anything your entire life. And just, you know, I think about this podcast and, and the idea of like, what's the truth claim here? 
And the tr- I think the truth claim that they're trying to make is like, if you want to have a valuable relationship with somebody, you have to give of yourself more than you could imagine. It's not just about gifts and things. When we're looking at true human intimacy with another person, whether that be with a wife, you know, I think I'm thinking about this right now because I just got engaged yeah. and I'm thinking about my marriage that I'm about to step into. And I'm like, what's, what, what is the true meaning of the intimacy that I'm going about to step in with this other person? And it's not that I can give her money. I work at a church. I don't make money. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> it's not that I can give her like really anything of financial weight or value or any gifts or anything like that, but it's because I can give her myself i can give her these things that are that, that are that are incalculable in value um that are that are that that is what we base human intimacy on and so when you look at cain and he lacks human intimacy because he was never willing to give anything of himself and i think that that goes to your point yeah, Jeff. Uh, he was talking to susan yeah and so. it just again pulls you back to the heartbreak of man Kane. Yeah. I just want to give the guy a hug. Anybody else? It, like I know it, he's broken, but like dude needs a the hug. The movie felt very Shakespearean in some aspects of just like, yeah, that's this, this very it. prolific character. And it's essentially his fall, his demise. It's very yeah. tragic. It's very tragic. Yeah. So like I, and I, I don't know much Shakespearean. Like it, it is one of the categories of literature slash theater that i would be interested in learning more and stuff like but it is a he wrote babe big in the city right he did he did yeah um (laughs) yeah not the sequel though which is just the the first one no no babe was the first one babe big in the city was the sequel yeah but is that also is that babe two electric (laughs) uh no that's uh babe two back in the habit that's the Zack snyder cut (laughs) is what that is yeah babe two for babe two fully Yeah. Two babe, two pig in the city. That's when all the pigs are sitting around the table talking about family. Yeah. Um, Oceans. Oceans. Babe. Babe. <laughs> yeah. So I just, that was, I, yeah, it's, that was the moment where I saw humanity in him because for the whole other time, he was this character that I can't relate to. Like I, I have nothing to attach to this character. Like I had more attachment to just anyone else in the film. Then, then I did him until that line. I'm like, wow, like I, I have, there have been moments in my life where I've been lonely or I have felt alone, but yet I've had many people that I know that have me, you know, like, and that was that, that for me was the standout line. Maybe the redeeming point for me in the movie. I'll tell you, man, it's the second watch. It's the I third will do watch. That for you, Zach. you look well, at you it. Kept, you added a, you added you a third s- watch now. Hold up, buddy. That's a whole, that's yeah. four hours? <laughs> you, just, you see Kane. It's the 10th watch. You see Kane in a different light. Every, sing, every single yeah. time you watch this movie. It's really the you third back-to-back viewing of it. It uh, really opens it up. <laughs> you, you just see every interaction with Kane as something that makes you understand him more, I guess. Um, so are we as, we as we kind of wrap this up, we, we do need to kind of end with we do need to acknowledge the the final the fi- the finale like rosebud the the culmination of what the whole movie well, well before we get into the serious what that represents i do want to say that whenever i hear the word rosebud yeah i'm reminded of austin powers are you familiar with 
the Austin Powers movies? <laughs> Mike Myers. The, I, Zach, I you know where I'm know, going with this? I don't know where you're going with yes, this. Yes, I do. There's a character <laughs> in the movie. Gonna... He's a, a very, very large Irishman who oh, is a sumo wrestler. Fat. Fat. Yes. Um, ah, now, I said it. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a moment where Foxy Shazam, uh, I believe that's her name. Beyonce, right? Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> Foxy Shazam, also the name of an excellent band. Look it up. Uh, Foxy Shazam is is picking up the laundry for the sumo wrestlers, and Fat <laughs> says to her, "I left a little rosebud in there for you," which I believe <laughs> means a small poo, because she then uses that diaper to uh, to can't remember the exact details, but they do a little science thing uh, with his poo that Austin Powers then drinks, uh, thinking it's coffee. So anytime I hear the word rosebud, that's what I think of. And Cassie, when she found out that we were going to be covering. Citizen Kane. Foxy Cleopatra. Foxy Cleopatra. Ah, Cassie yes. said, I can't wait to hear what you guys think Rosebud is. And I was just like, it's a uh, poo. <laughs> <laughs> right. Did you guys, I'm curious, did you guys have any idea? At, what, what was your, what were your guesses? I, to what Rosebud I was, was certain that it wouldn't be clear until the very end. When uh, his second wife leaves him and he's destroying her, her room, he picks up the snow globe that he drops at the at the on his deathbed and says Rosebud. So I thought Rosebud was his mother's name, uh, and that when he saw the snow globe, it reminded him of his Colorado home. Now I wasn't wrong; it did remind him of his Colorado home, but it it wasn't the love of his mother necessarily that Rosebud represents to him, which I thought it was until we see the sled. What Rosebud represents to him is innocence, innocence lost, his childhood. The only time he can remember where he wasn't manipulated, or in not. his opinion, facing adversity, yeah. although his adversity was self-brought. Yeah, exactly. That's a good word for it. Uh, I was trying to think of something clever to say, but like I, yeah, that and that I will say if it wasn't for the Rosebud thing, I would have lost complete interest in the first time watching this movie. Because I'm just like, that's the only, at this point, it's the only thing I'm invested in. Like, I want to know what the reporter wants to know. So I, I get the sentiment of it being something from his childhood, from that pivotal moment of him being told your life's about to drastically change. I, so I, I get the sentiment and I, I see the power in that. But like, for me, like it was still underwhelming. Like, I'm just, oh, it was okay. And like, and we still don't know fully. Was it just the name of his sled or was it, was, did he name the sled as a boy? Did he name it because of something else? Was it, he still could have been his mother's name. Like, and one like, thing that I wasn't clear on, which sled was it? Was it the sled that he had as when he punched Thatcher or, or was it the sled that Thatcher gave him for Christmas? Uh, I, don't I know. couldn't tell. I, yeah, There's no other shot in the movie where you see Rosebud on the sled, except at the end. So I just, yeah. Cause even in, in the beginning scene, he's holding the sled. So you right. can't see the, so I, so you, you would think it's that. I, I get the sentiment and I appreciate it. But for me, like with the way it was revealed, I, I wanted more. I wanted, I wanted a more direct connection or a more, which I mean, I guess there's power in the abstract, but like it left me wanting more, but not in a positive way of like, man, like I'm thirsty for it. Now it's like, man, I, I don't know what I just watched. And I don't know, like, I don't know. It was I was a little bummed at just the simplicity of it. Yeah. But there's a handful I of get, moments. I get, in the movie it, that's just, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think, um, I mean, first time watching, I had no yeah, freaking clue. I was like, I don't know, is it a dog? <laughs> um, I honestly thought it was a dog. <laughs> um, but what I wish it would have been, because I'm, I'm with you, Jeff, where it's like, I get it. It's cool. Like, yeah, there's a moment everything changed. It was a kid. It's cherished memories. But I almost wish that if I, if I could change the movie, I wish there would have been some sort of dialogue or exchange between him and Susan, which Susan being the one redeeming relationship that I think he had. The, the relationship that I think either she could have changed him or he could have changed her. And if, she, and if he would have relented to being loved and cared for by Susan in the way that she originally loved and cared for him, that could have changed who he is. So then he could have potentially completely shifted his character to, okay, now I have this money and I've been operating out of this thing and I'm getting out of this divorce and I've been building this self-image. But you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to essentially, I'm going to repent of my sin and I'm going to go in a different direction and I'm going to live my life in a different way with different values now because of Susan and this new marriage I have. So I wish they would have worked in that Rosebud was some sort of like, hey, when they got married, Susan didn't want roses, but she wanted rosebuds because it was like the beginning of their relationship or something like that. And the idea of here's the beginning of something that could have been new. I will say, as dissatisfying as some of the payoffs are in this movie, like there's a, there's a brief shot of him standing next to Hitler. Never pays off in the movie. Right? Like we don't understand the backstory of that. And and this is another one of those things that I, I really didn't feel like it paid off well. And this kind of goes back to earlier movies we've covered, right? Uh, when we reviewed or or discussed and analyzed, it's a wonderful life. You, Lucas, and I all had the same kind of. Uh, we didn't like the movie in the past because it's a little bit cliche and trite. Right. Um, and then one of the things we discussed when we watched The Clockwork Orange was that as offensive as this is, it doesn't work well if you don't lean into it. And uh, if there had been a full, what's the word I'm looking for? A full... Monty. No, not a full Monty. Full circle? Uh, if there had been a satisfying conclusion and, and a redemption story, that's what I wanted. I don't think the story pays off as well. Now, that is to say, we, we love the satisfying redemption story, but it doesn't impact us as much. It doesn't stick with us as much, right? The reason that Clockwork Orange is, is, has stuck with me as much as it did yeah. is because there's no redemption in it. The reason Citizen Kane, I think, has stuck with so many for so long is because it's a really dissatisfying and tragic story. Yeah. And the reason a lot of people don't like It's a Wonderful Life is because there's redemption. Right, it feels un it, it feels untrue. That's not the way life is in a lot in in most circumstances, right? And so, while I understand your point, Zach, I, and I think it's an excellent point, there's ways that they could have set it up, foreshadowed it, and, and really paid off well. I don't think it would have been as successful of a story. It wouldn't stick with people. I mean, yeah, uh, you look at the history. It's like I'm not a director, right? Like. Some, somebody else made that decision, and I think went with well, it. And specifically. I, I do love that point of, <laughs> yeah, you just, they just leaned into it. So, I mean, and I, I'm glad you really brought it up because I wanted to ask you guys one more really crucial <laughs> question that just like burning on my heart, which is how does this movie relate to A Clockwork Orange? I'm glad you brought that up. It's a question that doesn't get asked nearly enough on this show. Almost none of the episodes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if I were to shoehorn in meaning here, I would say that uh, throughout <laughs> – the movie in Citizen Kane. I think Kane is in search of belonging, in search of identity, 
Um, and that's a common theme in a lot of these movies, actually, we watch is this search for identity. And it's very much a theme in A Clockwork Orange. Um, now, Clockwork Orange really it kind of explores uh, indulgence in ways that Citizen Kane doesn't. In fact, Citizen Kane, they say he's not a drinker, right? It explores sexuality in ways that Citizen Kane doesn't. Like, we get nothing in Citizen Kane. It's tantalizing in any way. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think it, it's looking at it from a different angle. But with both of them, the main character is somebody that's experiencing a lot of angst, blames kind of the world, even though it's very clear that it's their own action that's put them in the position that there are, that they're in. Both characters uh, have this issue of uh, circumstance being forced upon them. You know, like yeah. uh, Alex in in Clockwork Orange it becomes part of this government program that strips him of humanity in a lot of ways to force him to be more, quote unquote, moral. Whereas in Citizen Kane, you have a, a guy sent off to learn how to be wealthy properly who clearly doesn't have the nature for that or the desire for that. So th- there are certainly similarities. Um, and honestly, in this one, I think it's a little less ham-fisted to find those similarities than some of the other movies we've covered. Uh, but I, Yeah, I would say out of all the movies, this, is, this character is the most similar to that main character. I in think Clockwork I would Orange. agree with that. Go on. Jeff, tell me more. Oh, oh Jeff. Um, so... Yeah, Zach, shut it. <laughs> <laughs> no, just just that all... You're, you're, you're following Sorry. this character through different... Granted, um, Citizen Kane is all in clips from the past, and we're watching Alex, right? We're, yeah. wa- we're watching Alex play out in real time, essentially. Like, But, like, you're seeing this person who, like, in their minds has nothing to lose and everything to gain. Mm. And... Even though one of them has means and the other one very much does not. Correct. Yeah. Like in in just I think there I think there are similarities in just this idea. Like they're trying to find what works, and they found a million other ways that don't work. They're trying to find their place in the world. Yeah. 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 Michael W. Smith. I'm. Did I make a reference that I don't know? The place in this world. It's an old eighties Christian. Linked below. Can, contemporary what's, what's, Christian. What's song. another line of that song, Jeff? <laughs> Looking for a reason. All you need I is one good reason. One more? One more line? It's just not getting in there. I actually hold on. <laughs> Sing just enough that it becomes a copyright problem. You know, I actually don't know I don't know the line in between the two I just said. It's linked below. I don't know the song. <laughs> Michael W. Smith. The reason I know it is because a, a Christian comedian, Weird Al Yankovic, did. Oh, okay. I was going to say, Weird Al Yankovic into, is not a Christian turned, comedian. Turned it into something else. Mark Lowry um, did that song. In a also linked way. below. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, I just, I, I never thought, of, I, I don't, I don't go throughout my movie watching thinking about Clockwork Orange, but like, I love how it does come up in this discussion because it, it, it does become kind of this this grounding central point where I can go, where I can filter things through of mm-hmm. how I'm viewing at least the movies that with this podcast. Like I just watched quantum mania and man and stuff. Like I did not watch it through the filter of this podcast. Like, of course. So like I wasn't analyzing it. Like I was citizen Kane and stuff like, but yeah, it's just, I, I do appreciate the conversations that have come out of Clark Orange. Yeah. It's one of those profound movies that sticks with you. Yeah. Even though it is horrific in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 Can I um, bring up one more thing visually that happens in 
yes. the movie that you can take or leave whether or not you put it in the 100%. actual episode. At the very end of the movie, they're burning all this yeah. stuff and they show black smoke coming out. Well, yeah. Is that or white smoke? It's because the they just appointed a new pope, I believe. <laughs> no, well, no. And uh, that's what that's the clear connection is the idea that black smoke means that there's no decision on who's going to be the next person to inherit this authority. Oh, interesting. And, so you, you do think it was this, a, this an treasure. intentional papal reference? I think it was incredibly intentional. The idea that it, it illustrates even furthermore the point that Cain is now dead and there's no inheritance. Yeah. It goes to in no the one last, because of the life that the he lived. the last thing of his identity that they were chasing after is now up in smoke. You know, that Ooh. last thing that had the answer of what they were chasing, that rosebud answer is now up in smoke. Yeah. It's gone. No, that, that's powerful. And, and, it, and, and before you see that scene, you see this Indiana Jones warehouse. Yeah, just, the, the, the warehouse just, 13. Uh, I got the exact same impression. Relics, and you're like, yeah. And, and and for me that that went back to that lonely line of like it doesn't matter what he spent his money on. Yeah. It's all just stuff at the end of the day. It's all stuff that may, take or may not turn into smoke. Yeah. Um and one one last thing on the visuals of this movie. Um the the makeup department for this movie, incredible. The way that these men appear to age, absolutely phenomenal. They nailed it. Yeah. Except for one one scene where you literally see the tape on the back yeah, of Orson Welles' face. I, I will say... Uh, <laughs> where he's wearing a ball cap. Jed, Jed Leland in the Senior Citizens Complex looked much more like uh, somebody in Florida, like, now, <laughs> for some reason. I don't know. I, like, for whatever reason, him just it didn't fit quite right. But, you know, I thought the, the, cause, the, the, the makeup for this movie was just remarkable. I just liked his glasses. I just really liked Jed's glasses. They're like little hipster, <laughs> yeah. you know, cylindrical glasses. You can't, I'm, I, you guys, the podcasters can't hear this. <laughs> we also I'm can't hear the way your hands are. My fingers. Um, shall, we, shall we wrap up? I believe you have some, some closing questions for us, Jeff. Yes. Uh, Zach, as a listener, you know these questions that are about to Let's be. Let's see if Zach can do them from memory. All right. What is the first question I always ask at the end of an episode? Uh, is it the rating? Uh, this is rated PG. Would you keep yeah, let's the rating? Start, let's start there. We'll go, go there, though. Yeah. Would you change the rating of this one? Uh, it's PG. You know, it's it's PG. I'd say you could even, honestly, you could probably make it G, be, other than maybe some of the smoke and alcohol. You could probably keep it PG, but it would be an extremely yeah, boring yeah. children's movie. Yeah. And they would not, like, it's... It's adult, but it's not necessarily like right, provocative sure. and, there, yeah. and you know debauchery there or anything are like some that. Theme, there it are just, some themes in it, though. Like like um, the second wife, she does try to commit suicide. It's like, but that's so like if you don't know that that's what that is, I think you'd miss it. Right, but no like, I I would say, I think if, if, that if kind of summarizes well. It's not a kids' movie. But it's absolutely PG. Right. Yeah. No violence. No sex. Yeah. No over substance abuse. Actually, there is nipple uh, early in the movie, but given context later, I think it's a fake nipple. When when they're doing the kind of the newsreel of his life at the beginning, and they show uh, like a pamphlet flyer for the for the opera that uh, what's her name was in. Yeah. Uh, like Susan's Susan. in. Like there is bare breasts there. Is there really? Yeah. But it's like a, a drawing, an, an illustration uh, on the pamphlet, not actually her. And then later, the the outfit she's wearing at the opera, like there's like a fake nipple on her dress. So I think that 
that's what that was. I, I maybe I'm paying yeah, too much attention. To Nipple games. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So I I agree. Like I, I I did. I watched this movie in the morning of this recording, same day. Yeah. And my daughter was up around moving in the same room, and there was nothing that came across the screen that I was like, "Oh wait, hold on." Like, yeah, it was. There was some yelling and stuff. Like there were some aggressive tones that made my daughter look at the screen. Mm. But even in that, there was nothing where I'm like worried about her hearing or seeing. So yeah, mm. I, I would agree. Like you're not going to come across something that is going to scar you for life as a young buck watching this or 100%. a young doe. Um, so hunting reference. All right. There's two and questions that remain. The, the next question being, um, would you watch it again? Uh, That's so not one of our questions. That is not one of your questions. Ah. <laughs> um, Darn it. Would you recommend, and Zach, I think I know this answer, uh, but, gotcha. I'll, but I'll shoot it to you. Would you recommend this film? <laughs> no, he hates it. No. I I really would. I, I think it's such a telling, especially for anybody who's politically minded or is conscious about the media or is even coming from a difficult family life. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's really, really valuable. Um, and if I can even throw in very quickly three more recommendations for movies for people who specifically are interested in the journalism. You can, but I'm going to edit this out. Fine. The Post, <laughs> The Company You Keep, and Spotlight. All right. Spotlight, I'll Spotlight's 100% in the top 250. I don't know about the other two. But Spotlight's uh, a great movie. All of those linked below on where you can find them to watch them. Yeah. Thank you. I, I would also recommend it. but And I do want to say just within my answer, I will jump to what the third question is. I would recommend it, but this is absolutely not in my top 250. Like, I think it is, there are some elements in it that make it a Shakespearean tragedy. There are some moments in it that were challenging and I appreciate it. And I think other people can gain things from it. And maybe my opinion would change. Like I did learn with, if it's a wonderful life, rewatching, like I am definitely open to watching it again. But as of now, as of this recording, it's not one that, I I did not enjoy it at this point in my life. A lot of the lessons and themes in it, I think, are much better handled in um, Into the Wild. Correct. For example. Yeah. So 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 I, I kind of I piggybacked mine just to say like I would recommend it. I think it's worth the watch, but I didn't value it enough to where it would be in my top two fifty. So that's the second half. So I guess I, I combined those two questions this episode. But like, would you recommend it? And would this be in your top two fifty? I would recommend it. I will probably watch it again, but I'll also if again. I never saw it again, I don't think I'd be brokenhearted about it. Yeah, it's not in my top two fifty. This is the only Orson Welles movie in the top two fifty as well. Oh, is it? It is. He has two other films. What a failure! He has two other films <laughs> that are major motion pictures. Um, one had spent time in the top two fifty. Oh, okay, in the early, which one was it? In the nineties. Oh. well while he's pulling that up zach there is um one other question that we actually haven't touched yet um has it aged well Mm. yes absolutely i think so especially with that little win or fraud uh little just throwaway thing i think i think especially if you're politically minded this movie really rings a light on media on influence on power what is power um and and kind of the it's a little peek behind the curtain I think for for some so I think absolutely it ages well I'd agree I like watching black and white films and so for that like I wouldn't mind seeing this movie retold 
in a different way, mm. maybe modernized and maybe in, in some elements it has been, but yeah. like I enjoy watching classic films in a black and white setting. And so for that reason, like with the way it presented itself, I liked the black and white, the, the, the forties editing and stuff like, it's like, I think it's aged fine for what it is. I wouldn't change anything about the film production wise. I would largely agree with that. Uh, one thing that I said, uh, in our Princess Mononoke episode, episode was that there's a scene in this movie where they're in a restaurant and uh, the phone rings and there's a long walk across. That's not in this movie. Um, I I did some digging to try to figure out what movie it is. It best I can figure it's actually not a black and white movie at all. It's a movie from the '70s called The Conversation, which is a critically well received movie. Um, <laughs> I was gonna guess The Ringer. Mm, I think this movie's aged really well. Um, there are certain things that we don't do in movies anymore that was in this. Uh, and, and so for there, are, there's a certain sense in which this movie is kind of like a time capsule and that's part of what its charm is. Uh, but I, I do think it has aged very well. There's a lot of movies from the forties that, that were not like, despite this movie being quite old, it was doing things that no other movies in the forties were even attempting to do. And I think that that's, that's helped it age quite well. Other than some of the history and maybe the language, everything else is aged really, really well. Yeah. There's some overacting in it. My wife, my wife Ooh. came down a couple times. Especially with Jed Leland. Didn't watch it. And, and the, um, the opera wife. Yeah. When she, she's, a- when she, when, when there's that scene of when you're looking up at Orson and down or up at Kane and down at Susan. Yeah. And it's, it's essentially right before she tries to um, commit suicide there, there is some over dramatization mm-hmm. from her part, like, but it, 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 that's that was pertinent for that era. So I mean, like, it wasn't out of place. But nowadays, it's just like that's, that, honey, you're being a little much. Like, I'm rooting for you, but you're being a little much. Like, and on the contrary, <laughs> there was there was a thing that would that's very much a stage acting thing, where when somebody's speaking, nobody else is right. moving, even right. And that really happens in the scene where Geddes is confronting them. Uh, uh, what's her name? The 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 singer, the singer wife, mm-hmm. turns to speak to Kane. Geddes interrupts, and sh- like everybody else on on screen, just freezes. I've never noticed that, and it bothered me. I I will say I'm glad you mentioned that. I was when I was watching this, there were moments where I'm like, if this was a theater performance it makes more i sense. think i'd enjoy it more yeah it's like if there was ever a citizen citizen kane on broadway i'd go watch it sure i'm there i'm I, there I'd go watch it i yeah. think this 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 story would work well kind of like death of a salesman it would, be incredible it would work really well on stage yeah. yeah yeah um that's it for the questions i do what i did find out so orson wells has two other movies the magnificent ambersons came out in 1942 just a year later that debut uh, this is specifically imdb top 250 when no so the the highest it ever ranked on the top 250 was 250 was 250 the magnificent ambersons and then a touch of evil that came out in 1958 it peaked at number 54 but neither of these two are currently on the top 250 and citizen kane peaked at at one point it had been three yeah yeah so it is fascinating yeah I, I think that's that's remarkable. Um, that's a fun statistic. I didn't know I could access up yeah. until right this movie. So bookmark that. I, we'll we'll, we'll consult that, that later. Yeah, future episodes. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's a great movie. I think people should absolutely watch it. I assume anybody that's listened this far has already seen it. Yes. And we'd love to hear we'd what you think. We'd hope so. Yeah. We'd love um, to hear what you think. Find us on social media. Zach, if people want to find you, uh how And we will find you. And and assuming <laughs> you want to be found, how can they go about finding you? Or would you prefer not to be found? Uh they could find me on Instagram, I guess. Um, I'm Instagram at Zach Summers. Uh, and, uh, That's S-O. Uh, you know, I don't post often, uh, but when I do, I try to make it personal, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, he, he's not going for the big headlines. Well, Zach, um, it's been too long since I've seen you. It was so good to see you again. Uh, and I hope that we have you on again in a future movie. I know that you sent me a short list of movies that you'd love to cover, and there's still plenty of those to cover. Yeah, I, mean, I think we'd love yeah. to have you on again. Yeah, we've got a couple more movies if, still until we finish the top 250. Yeah, at least three more. Yeah, I I want to at least if if I can make a pitch, man, I really want to talk about the Truman Show Ooh. and how the Citizen Kane and the Truman Show have parallels. Parallel. Mm. I I oh, love the Truman boy. Show. Mm. Next week? No. Um, <laughs> well, okay. Uh, well, audience, our listeners, you get to vote. Well, I'm just kidding. No, no you <laughs> well, don't. Leave it up to you. This is not a democracy. <laughs> you vote who gets to be on the episode. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, Zach, it's been really good having you in my ears. It's been a while since you and I have connected and stuff. And it's been really fun and pleasant talking to you again. And um, this has been fun. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Yes. I've loved talking about one of my favorite movies. And before we close, yeah, um, we do want to say if and, and you may have something else you want to pitch, Nelson. But for me, like as as you, for you as the listeners, if you're enjoying this podcast, um, if you if you like what you hear, or if you have opinions about what you hear, we'd love to hear it. But more importantly, if you are enjoying this, please share it. We we would just we would like. To have reach a bigger audience. I mean, just being super vulnerable here and just honest, we'd like to reach a bigger audience. We these past 13 slash 14 conversations we've had to date, like I feel like I've I've gained a better perspective as a human because of these these conversations we have. Like I feel like just personally, and I am biased, silver screen biased specifically. Like hashtag silver screen biased. I I feel like <laughs> These conversations are important and powerful. It's like if, if you've enjoyed this, please give us a share. If everybody listening to this podcast shares it with one other person, our audience will double in size because that's how that works. Is that's, that math? That's basic math. I'm told. I'll check that out. After um, there is one more. And then if you get three friends. Yeah. <laughs> this has now become a multi-level money. marketing scheme. Um, there is, of course, one last bit of business that we must resolve um, before we wrap up. Join us in two weeks. Uh, we'll be joined by my very longtime close friend, Connor, to discuss Full Metal Jacket. Uh, he is currently serving uh, in the Air Force as a medic, and this was a movie of his choice. Uh, and, of course, as you can imagine, I've got some thoughts on Full Metal Jacket. And it's our second Stanley Kubrick film. And our second Stanley Kubrick film. So we, you better believe Clockwork Orange comes up again. Yeah. We mentioned it at least once. Yeah. That's actually an episode that's already been recorded. Yes. Uh, so so we're, we're, we're thinking fondly of the conversation, and it's a, it's a terrific one. Yeah. Uh, please join us for that. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. If you found value in what we discussed today, please consider leaving us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have any feedback or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. That's right. Tell us why we're wrong. 
If you want even more content and ways to engage with us and each other, check out our Patreon page. By supporting us there, you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and help us continue to create high-quality episodes, as well as help pay for our future plans. Links to our social media, merchandise, and Patreon are in the show notes.